Some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. When it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, guy. Yeah, guy. Welcome, everybody. Spit, the Spit Podcast. Scott Bass, David Lee Scales with you here on this Wednesday morning, February 7th, 2018. David, I'm going to say something. I want you to respond. One minute. One minute to wave. Shaking in my boots right now, dude. (laughs) I am... I just had PTSD, actually. Full... <laughs> full p- <laughs> what do we refer? We are. Uh, that is the voice that comes on over the intercom at the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch in the middle of Lemoore, in the middle of the fog, in the middle of cow country. It wasn't foggy, was it? It was sunny. in the morning when I was driving. Yeah. Well, in the morning when I was driving over, it was right. So this is um, the episode of Spit, where, and I know that you had a great. I'm assuming a good podcast with Jamie Brissick and Matt Warshaw. And I actually heard some people in the water talking about it yesterday. No way. Yeah. Funny. Yeah, this guy, Todd, who I used to work with at Surfer Magazine paddles up and he goes, he goes, Cardiff Reef or Kelly Slater's Wave Ranch, which is it going to be, you know, make a decision, you know. And and we went on to rap and he was telling me that he heard the Warshaw and the Brissick commentary on it. And um, and anyway, yeah, so David and I got to surf. You and I got to surf. What'd you answer, Todd? Because uh, that is actually a great question. I don't think that's a great question because that assumes that it's a zero-sum game. That that, and that's my problem with all the haters on the Wave Ranch is that look. Okay, so to answer your question, Todd's question. Todd's question. Which, by the way, Scott does not think is a good question. Todd. Well, jeez. I mean, it's okay. It's kind of like <laughs> I hear you. No, I hear you completely. It. it I mean, if I was to choose, that's a the obvious. It's a no-brainer that the ocean is the choice, and that's my yeah. point. Is like, of course, it's not the ocean. It's not trying to be the ocean. It's a perfect killer, unreal barrel wave, rippable like a skate park. It's yeah. unreal. Yeah. But if you asked me if I had to choose between a life of the ocean and a life of this wave park, I would choose the ocean ten times out of ten. Yeah, completely. Because it's it's apples and oranges for one thing. Yeah. But. Um, Anyway, where was I going with that? I forgot. Well, geez. I mean, there's so much to there's discuss. There's a lot to unpack. Look, let's just start with our experience. Or maybe you went there let, already. No, let's definitely start there. Here's what happened. I got an email um, a few weeks in advance from Dave Prodan saying, here's an invite and also please be discreet. So you and I came to record, I think the following week, we recorded the entire episode without saying anything to one another. When when Dave said, please be discreet, I don't know if he meant, look, keep this within surf media and this is a media day, or don't tell anybody because you're getting an invite and X, Y, and Z guys aren't and they'll be pissed. So I played it super cool with you and as did you. And then at the end of the episode, we shut off the mics and you just kind of like, you started, I think, to walk to the door. Then you turned back, looked over your shoulder, and you're like, hey, did you get an email from Dave Prodan this week? <laughs> and I exactly. just got a full-on smile. I was like, you got it too? <laughs> <laughs> we both got our golden tickets. And that was three and a half months ago or some, or more. Mid-October. Yeah, so that was funny, right? Because um, I had the same experience. I'm like, oh, shit, what if Dave didn't get an invite? I don't want to ruin it, you know, or whatever. So, And we were both very careful about 
if we do tip our hat to somebody and the WSL gets wind of it, then our invite might be rescinded. Dude, I didn't tell you this, but I actually no. did that. No, I know. You did tell oh, me Oh, I this. did tell yeah, you that. Go ahead oh, and okay. tell the audience the story. Well, so then I went up to Jamie's house, Brissick's house, to uh, record that long-form interview I did with him. And the conversation of the wave pool came up. He had told me that he was there for the ribbon-cutting day with um, Kelly Slater two years ago, where like literally it was the first wave that Kelly ever saw, that Todd Glazer shot that was on the cover of Surfer Magazine, all that stuff. Jamie was there that day, and he was talking about it. And I don't remember exactly how the conversation went, but I assumed that he... Oh, okay. I think he mentioned knowing that um, Nick Carroll was had just gone or something like that. He knew somebody who had just gone for the media day because there was two media days. Mm-hmm. Well, I then revealed to him, I was like, yeah, well, I'm going to be up there too because I assumed Jamie already knew. And then Jamie looks at me, he's like, what, you're going? And I was like, crap, dude. So then I get an email from Dave Prodan going, hey, I just got an email from Jamie Brissick inviting him and I saw that you guys got together recently. So then I had to cop the blame for that. Thankfully, Dave did not renege on my invitation. But you, were, you were concerned. You were sort of shivering in your boots for a minute. There. I, I honestly, I was like, I understand, dude, if I have to take the fall for this, I will. But I also feel bad just for you and everybody else because then we had one more guy in the pool. Uh, I didn't care. I did. Fewer waves for us, dude. <laughs> Jamie could fight for his own invite. <laughs> well, As I recall, Jamie fell a couple times and I poached a few of Jamie's waves. You got so many. I'm so angry. Not angry. I'm jealous. I'm envious. I'm envious. You got how many waves? I think I got three waves or four waves the first session and I definitely got five waves the second session. That's insane. And yeah. I know one of them was off mine. Yes. Off one left. of my best waves was off of that left. My very first left. I've completely botched it. And you got the sickest drainer on the inside. We should probably tell the listeners that um, back up a little bit. But yeah, yeah. so uh, we drove in and um, I got to park in Matt Wilkinson's spot. First I was of like, all, I was that's like, not exactly how smooth this process went. <laughs> okay, As I ahead. remember, I'm in a, in a golf cart. <laughs> I was in a golf cart. Off in the mulch, like filming for the guys from Stab from the, the side angle, the beach angle, so to speak. And some random Chevy Malibu comes per- burning up the dirt in the adjacent lot, not even on the right property, but on the adjacent lot. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? And it's you. You almost get your car stuck in the dirt on yeah. the wrong lot because you yeah. didn't know which gate to go into. Yeah. So we had to then back you out, back you, go. I'm like, dude, go to the gate that actually says surf ranch on it. Right. That's the one you want. And the magic gates opened for me eventually. And I found my way into uh, Matt Wilkinson's spot. Which spot did you park in? Which I want to say Philippe Toledo. I took a photo. I was a little disappointed they didn't have a spot for us. You know. Totally. Scott William Bass, David Lee Scales, front row. Yeah, WSL. It's like a foot masseuse waiting. If you need some tips on hospitality, WSL, talk to Scott. He'll show you how to do it. <laughs> well, we jest because the hospitality was really through the roof. It I really mean, was. Uh, you know, it's funny. I have a friend who's adamantly against everything surf pool. He's adamantly against the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch. He's just a hater for no other reason than to be a hater, yeah, you know? because he didn't get an invite. Not even that. I mean, he, he'll he have some ethical high horse to stand on, but it's at the end of the day. Um, and so he's making fun. He's like, I hate all of these Instagrams I see. Every single one of you guys, David Scales, you, Chris Cote, all of you just like, 
doing the hands in prayer emoji and thanking Kelly Slater for being allowed and you're just buying in, you're just giving him free PR and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, and I'm like, dude, you know what? I'm so stoked. I am thanking Kelly Slater for this. This thing is killer. I agree. And I would do it again. And those emoji hands thanking him are code for please invite me back, you know? Completely. Yeah, I don't think it's free PR at all. He invested a tremendous amount. We couldn't put a price on the experience that we had. I'm. It's sincere PR. Yeah. But um, so we pulled up, we parked, and um, I was next to you when I pulled up. And you're like, dude, Sam from Stab already got the killer. Wasn't it Sam? Yeah. He got the wave, the first wave, and it was like the wave of the day. Like nobody topped that wave. He absolutely killed it. Yeah. And I had I was a little late, but um, my my experience when I peered over the edge with you and saw the first wave coming through, I was like, oh my! It really is something to see and to behold in person, and it's much more powerful than the videos um, make out. Yeah. That was my experience anyway. That I was like, oh. First of all, it's not a three foot wave. It's a bigger wave than you realize. Yeah. And um, and then you see the wave peel through and the guy's just ripping and it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And I was like a kid in a candy store. Where's my board? Where's my wetsuit? When I was trying to contain myself, but it literally is that feeling when you're 12 years old and you go to Disneyland for the first time or however Truly. old you are. And, and, you know, you're in line for, you know, Splash Mountain or whatever ride. And it's just, it's. It was incredible. I mean, I know everyone's talked at length about it. And and I'm here to just gush from the mountaintops, as I said in my Instagram. You know, I have, I'm a surfer. You're a surfer. All the surfers that I know that are of the same sort of DNA, when we see a wave, we want to ride it. And it doesn't matter where the wave is. It could be in the ocean. It could be in a lake. It could be a, a river wave. It could be, if I see a wave, my imagination, my internal you know, default is to go, hey, that wave looks rideable. Let's ride it. I don't think, oh, how is it made? It's not ethical to surf it because it's an, un you know, I don't, I don't give a shit. I'm going surfing. Nothing's going to hold me back. That's sort of been in some ways a detraction from my character, but that's been since I was a kid. I mean, don't hold me back from surfing. Like nothing's going to stop me from going to that. And yeah, it really is. I couldn't agree with you more. It kind of brings out this hedonistic, childlike, just wanting, greedy thing, which certainly there's bad things that come of that. Um, I guess it's the self-centered, the yeah. id, right. you know, inside of you. But there's not a lot of times in your adult life where you feel that way. Your adult life, you've layered on so much cynicism that it's like there's always a qualifier involved of what's going on. It's hard to feel true joy, giddy joy as an adult. And that was one experience. Firstly, receiving that email, I felt yeah. it. Yes. And then secondly, being there that day, I completely felt it. Yes. And um, so, yeah, I agree. It uh, The Disneyland example is the best. It's like when you were a kid and it was just you didn't have a responsibility or a care in the world. You were just there to ride the rides. That's what the wave ranch was it surf was ranch. so killer now let me let me i have a commentary about exactly what your friend is saying okay being good. on instagram seeing everybody else talk and write about it and but all that. tell me about first what was matt because i heard that matt was a little cynical and i heard jamie might have been a little cynical because i want to hear all the cynicism before we pile on because i'm i don't believe in the cynicism i don't that's believe. my commentary so my commentary is on them my okay. commentary is on so how everybody else matt you know they both 
had a blast when they were riding a wave. Absolutely. I saw them ride waves. They were stoked and they were, there was nothing but glee and joy yeah. coming from those guys. They did. And they admit it and they say, you know, if that's all it's about, then I'm absolutely, I will sign my life away and like pay them whatever they want and come do it all the time. However, that is what it's all about. Exactly. But then they, but of course you're not doing that 24 seven. You then go home and you reflect on the experience. And when you're reflecting, you have to figure out how does this affect surfing as a whole? How does this affect my life? You know what? I'm actually feeling kind of greedy right now. I wish I could go back there. I wish I could write a check. So the greed is something that you start to assess and all of, I'm not justifying them. You're looking at me quizzically right now. Well, I want to. I want to chime in. I'm going to let you go, and I hope I remember well, all my points. Write them down. Write them down. But that is my point exactly. Is I wanted to give a commentary on reflecting on all of these guys' thoughts, and my thought is they are uh, curmudgeons. Like they are being lame about it. Like it was a black. Okay, your buddy who hasn't been. The reason why he's being uh, negative about it is because he hasn't yet gotten an invite. I guarantee if he got an invite, a lot of that negativity he'd be he'd shut up about and he'd drive up there and he'd surf it. Now what I've seen is guys who are negative before or even positive before are negative after. And what I think that's about is an underwhelming performance. They underperformed and now they're going, oh man, that wave's not as good. I didn't, that barrel, you know, you have to do these things in the barrel to make it like, and they're coming up with excuses as to why the wave isn't as good. So they were negative before, they're negative after. I'm self-aware enough to say my bad experience at the wave pool was due to my lack of ability or my lack of kind of being able to shake the nerves, lack of being able to execute on the day of. However, the wave's amazing. I'm the one who botched it, you yeah. know? And... I felt a lot of, I had to process that, you know, but they took me a while to kind of feel okay about it. But the driving home the next day, I was like, what the heck dude? I only got four waves. How come Scott got nine or whatever it was. And you know, I, I just want more waves. I wish I didn't even get to like surf to my ability level. What the heck? I, am I ever going to get invited back? Is this going to become something in the future that I could pay my way into when I'm all of that felt like negativity to me, but I stopped in Santa Barbara surfed. And it all went away. It was like, oh, okay, cool. Got this out of my system. Got this kind of pent up latent energy that I wasn't able to expel in the pool. Got this all out of my system in the ocean. And the world is right again, you know? Yeah. So I think a lot of the negativity is coming from kind of a lack of self-awareness about being willing to accept one's own limitations, you know? Um, so was that what Matt and Jamie's thing was? Is that they went home and they felt guilty and selfish and and like... Because no, I would suggest that your guilt and your self and your selfishness was was there and present prior to your experience at the surf ranch. No, my my prior experience was having the highest expectations. You know, um, first of all, Jamie wasn't negative at all about it. I didn't feel. I think Jamie had a real kind of level headed assessment of it. Um, Matt was said that he got the best barrel that he's gotten. I think in a decade or something like that. So Matt was really psyched on the individual waves. But he was negative on, I think, what it means for surfing as a whole. Why? Not because even negative. Okay, no, not negative. I'll tell you why. Because his experience growing up surfing was this one thing. Right. Like, it's a journey, and right. I'm going to work hard, Nobody's and I'm going to travel. That. Nobody's changing and now, that. And that created characters. That created these kind of manly men who had a lot of character and personality now moving forward you can just buy your way into the experience and surfing will never be what it once was that's not that's so not true 
And I'll tell you why. Okay. Because the experience that he had and that I had and that you had and that all of us have had growing up as surfers and searching out waves and experiencing the coast and the travel and the camaraderie and the rough times and the character that it builds and all of these things, the George Downings, the, all of these people that surfing created, all of these larger than life heroes or figures or anti-heroes, they're still going to be there. Surfing in a wave pool is not changing that. If you're suggesting me that the creation of these artificial waves means the destruction of these characters, first I say, so you're telling me that people are going to stop surfing in the ocean. That's that's what you're telling me, that people are going to stop searching for waves, that people are going to stop living a coastal lifestyle, that people are going to stop doing what we've been doing for the past 70 years since Gidget. And I would say no. And I would also say, hey, maybe, I hope so, because that means I there's know, more for me too. in the ocean, because I'm not stopping it. Right. And the idea that that Matt's, um, you know, he's, that he's threatened by the fact that this these characters and this life and experience that he knew is now going to maybe be gone because of these artificial waves that are being made in Lemoore is ridiculous. And, and he's got to admit that. Yeah, well, why is he maybe afraid? Admit- what is he afraid of? He's afraid that Roger Erickson's of the world are going to be disappear. I say bullshit. Sunset yeah. Beach is going to be there forever. Right. Pipeline's going to be there forever. These characters are going to be there. They're not leaving. They're actually, there's more of them today than there were two weeks ago in Lemoore when he surfed. Right. And so I just find that if that's his criticism, and I don't know, I mean, and, I guess yeah, maybe I'm, I could be mischaracterizing it, but I think that whether it's Matt or not, that is certainly part of the conversation that's been happening. I just so, find it invalid. I find it lacking. Um, it's not cogent. It doesn't make sense that this is going to disappear because these are created. Yeah. The thing that was created isn't taking away anything. They're totally two separate deals, which is why when you started off the conversation and I told you about Todd in the water yesterday, he goes, which would you choose? I would undoubtedly choose the ocean. Yeah. There is no doubt, but, but that it's kind of like, what's the best song ever? It's like, okay, look, it's sort of a silly question. Let's take the silliness out of it and realize that this is that over there, totally separate deal, and this is the ocean, totally separate deal. They're not the same, and no one's trying to take that and replace it with that. Then let me ask it a different way. Okay. If you could, uh, you get one choice. For the next month, you get to surf your local beaches that you're used to surfing. Yes. Or you get one day at Surf Ranch, and you have to give up the next month of surfing your local beaches. What would you pick? I get one day at the surf ranch and I have to give up a month in the ocean, in the ocean. I can't go in the ocean for a month from today for the next 30 days. You can give I go up those swimming days. Can um, I go body surfing? Or no, you can, you can, can uh, enter you cannot ocean? enter the ocean. Let's do can that. I enter the ocean. You cannot enter the ocean for one month for one day. How long do I get ranch? at the surf ranch? One day, one full day. Yeah. I would take the surf ranch. I would too. Absolutely. I would catch hundreds of perfect waves yeah. and be satiated for the month that I would be walking my dog along the shoreline. So and that, oh, by the way, the waves have been crappy this, you know, this winter's not been very good. So yeah. So that, that what's the over under though? You know, it's like, would you give up six months? No, I want to give up six months. Would you give up three? Probably not. Would you give up two? Maybe, you know, for one day or yeah, two for months one, for, for one day. day. What is, what's the over under? I would give up two months for one day if I, because I would catch a ton of friggin' perfect waves. It's just me in the pool, yeah. Me and a friend or whatever, yeah. 
I, first of all, you have to experience the pool before you can answer this question. Like if you haven't surfed this wave, you're automatically going to go, oh, the ocean for sure. Are you kidding me? What a bunch of dicks. Can't believe they would choose that wave pool for one day and give up two months of ocean entering the ocean. I think you can only answer this question if you've experienced the wave because the wave's friggin' perfect. Yeah. So if I'm going to catch 30 waves, perfect ones. Yeah. I, th I think the, the larger conversation... But again, it's kind of a... When we get to these questions, it's they're fun questions to answer, but they're not questions by which you can f create a foundation to then to then um, have a spike in a, in a criticism or... A, you know, like, you can't use it as a path towards an overarching sort of ethos about the wave pool and the creation of artificial waves. I think that um, this conversation would also be different five years from now. Right now, we're willing to do that because it's such a novelty. I bet if we get a bunch more sessions up there, the novelty will wear off, and it will. We wouldn't trade a day in the ocean for a day in the the pool. I have a larger question though for you that I would love your commentary on, which is, um, you just said, yeah, it's because you get to surf this perfect wave in the wave pool. Is the perfect wave, the perfect wave has always been the chase for us because it's so scarce. Now that it's not scarce, I'm wondering if we'll find out that the perfect wave actually isn't really that great. It's not that great of a thing. Maybe the barrel itself isn't as rad as we always thought it was. We only thought it was rad because we only got it in three second increments every, you know, super in a very kind of scarce, um, every so often throughout the year that we put a high premium on it. Maybe now that it's a commodity and you could just park it in the barrel and you sit there and you go, this actually isn't that cool. You know, I'm wondering if having a perfect wave at your disposal will demystify and what will then we will realize is what we've been craving all along is the journey, is the experience, is the getting in the cold ocean in the early morning and kind of roughing it for an hour before you go about your day. You know? Well, absolutely. You touched on a bunch of great things. The first thing that I think we should clarify is that the myth of the perfect wave. Okay. Because um, it was issue number one of Surfer Magazine in the back of it or in the front of it. John Severson made this glowing statement that, you know, we will forever be in search of the perfect wave. That's I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically, and that sort of set into motion every surfer's mantra. We've got to, you know, we'll be on the search for this perfect wave. But I'm suggesting to you that at some point in your surf life, you get to a place where, and hopefully it's sooner rather than later, you realize that there's no such thing as a perfect wave. What is perfect is the equipment to ride the waves that are presented with you, to you. In other words, right? Um, in fact, I think Mickey Munoz said that, made that statement. There's no such thing as a perfect wave, just no bad. Is, just, no such thing as bad wave. No such thing as bad waves, just bad equipment. Right. You know? And... Um, and so I think the myth of the perfect wave needs to be uh, shattered. And I think, I think this will shatter it. I think so. I, I think you're right. And I think that, that certainly if you have any too much of anything good, it turns bad. Exactly. There's exactly. no doubt, you know. Yeah. And so then you, then you begin to wonder, okay, I've got all the money in the world, but if I get a little bit more money, will I find some serenity? And the answer is no. And so what's going to bring me serenity? What am I, what's the void in my heart that I'm trying to fill? I'm trying to fill it with money. I'm trying to fill it with fame. I'm, maybe I'm trying to fill it with alcohol or drugs. Maybe I'm trying to fill it with sex. 
nothing's filling this void in my heart. What's going to fill the void? And that's a question, a personal question that everyone, hopefully at some point, sooner rather than later, gets to ask themselves honestly. And I think a lot of good stuff will be revealed. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that's that's kind of how I felt at the wave pool was um, the best part for me about the experience was the anticipation and the camaraderie, like going and hanging out with all those guys, yourself included, was like going on a surf trip. I still got the surf trip experience out of it. And we all went to dinner. We all um, drank, you know, ate chips and guacamole or whatever afterwards, had lunch together, had breakfast together, rapped about the waves, looked at the footage, like we're tripping Did out. Did it matter it. that you were in Lemoore rather than mainland Mexico or Costa Rica? It was equally as shocking of a cultural experience. Exactly. I'm telling you, dude, Lemoore, I, I didn't tell you this, but I mentioned it in that Warshaw Brissick episode, but I walked up to the counter to check into the hotel. The girl had her head down and she senses that I'm there. So she kind of glances up. She takes one look at me. It takes her less than two seconds. She goes, oh, you're here for the wave pool? Just by looking at the fact that I'm a six foot tall white dude, you know, <laughs> which I don't think there was a lot of in Lemoore before. And when you walk around wow, the casino. That's a pretty massive racist generalization you just threw over the town of Lemoore. It's accurate. Like, I, I mean, a, a surfer dude, you know right, what I mean? There's right. not a lot of surfers passing through Lemoore. Right. And you walk through the casino, which, by the way, this casino uh, hotel mm -hmm. is the main attraction in Lemoore for, I don't know, a 50 mile radius at least. Yeah. And you look around and through the casino and it's just, it's a lot of uh, migrant farm workers there hanging out for the Friday night. That's where they go out for the night. And when you then see somebody else who looks like a surfer, yeah, it is obvious. Matt Warshaw. It is Jamie Brissick. It's you, you know, so yeah. the, we're the only ones there who are wildly out of place. Matt doesn't look like a surfer. A Matt looks point. like he could be there on a scientific quest to make sure that the water levels in Lemur are correct. Or, We're you know saying I mean? Matt like he, today. He could, be a, he could be an agricultural doctor, or, you know, like have a doctorate in some sort of, you know, and he's there. The city of Lemur hired him to do some consulting or something. I was thinking he was there for Comic-Con. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm just kidding. We're, zing, we're zinging Matt today. <laughs> so here's the deal. It wasn't... It, I'm, this is not an assessment on Lamore. This is a fact of the matter was everybody in that hotel knew why I was there. You know, everybody worked there. And sure enough, I talked to the girl at some point at dinner and um, yeah, she was like, no, it's brought this influx of surfers and people. And it's been really interesting to see. And she was asking me like, what is it? Are they opening it to the public? So um, to answer your question as a surf trip, culturally, it was as foreign to me as Mexico is. Yeah. And, and I was even suggesting that the fellowship and the camaraderie that you experienced, it doesn't matter if you're in Lemoore because no. that was sort yes. of where you were going exactly. with that. And, yeah. and, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, like if you're sharing experiences with, with friends or new friends, exactly, then that's kind of what travel is. And that's where you meet these characters. And, you know, who knows you run out of gas, you know, Anything well, so could that's, happen. that's the thing. The wave itself, I, I was realizing after the fact, wasn't actually the best part of the day. I mean, it was in the sense that it's still novelty, but at some point the novelty wears off and what uh, lasts are those experiences, the work, the effort, the journey, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was, it, it was fascinating. Um, maybe we should get through the, the process of what went down i don't know if you did this already i don't want to bore the no. listeners but so yeah we basically we had 15 people it was divided into three groups of five and we each had two one-hour sessions in the pool 
So, and the people that were there were um, Stab, Stab, right? So Sam, who owns Stab. Ashton. Ashton. Which is the editor-in-chief. Right. Um, Shin, Shinya Dalby, which is the graphic design dude. Right. Michael Ciaramella. Right. Uh, and Morgan Williamson, which are writers for the magazine. Right. And then there was Jake Howard from the Surfer's Journal. Dave Gilovich. Dave Gilovich from Surfline. Um, Jeremy Schluntz from Surfer Magazine. Uh, you and I. Warshaw Brissick. Matt Warshaw, Jamie Brissick, Brendan Thomas. That's right. From the Surfer's Journal who got a great wave. Um, and the two Zach, guys, Zach and Dylan from Zach, the Inertia. Yeah. And we might be missing one or two, but that was basically the crew. And... Um, and I were you were we in group one or two? I think I was in group so two. You so we drove we meaning kind of the large majority of the group drove up the day before. You flew in the morning of, right? So um, and then flew out. So we swapped our afternoon sessions so you could catch your flight. Right. That's what that was. Right, right. So we had the morning. You and I had the morning session together. I forget who else was in it. So again, you get two one hour sessions, three hours in the morning. So that's three groups from nine to noon. And then lunchtime from noon to one, I think. And then three sessions in the afternoon from one to four. So um, you'd get one hour in the pool and each person got two priority waves, each among the five. So there was going to be 10 waves surfed in that one hour. You had one pri priority once on the right, priority once on the left. You were also welcome to poach a wave if somebody fell. Now, they have you line up in the pool. There, The fence has uh, obviously posts and the posts have numbers on them. So they tell you first person with priority line up at post number 31, second person with priority line up at post number 50 or whatever. And they stagger you uh, so that you're kind of spaced out evenly. So if somebody falls, you can spin and go. There's no priority sitting. There's no benefit to sitting second priority or fourth priority because you don't know if the guy who has priority is going to fall immediately, fall midway down the line or fall at the end. You're just hoping they fall in front of you with enough time for you to spin around and go. Right. So you were in a position, I guess, four or five times where you had the benefit of that. Yeah. I never got that. Like I literally was begging. I'm shooting daggers into the surfer on the wave. <laughs> just like fall, 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 fall. And they don't fall. There was once, I, it might've been Morgan or Zach, I forget, who was getting barreled right in front of me. And I'm like creeping over the edge of the barrel like, paddle like light paddle light paddle hoping they fall and they don't and i go oh and i let the wave go and then they pop up five seconds later they ate it right after me so the person who was behind me then spun and went and got away i was just like ah. um so that part of it is really you know kind of intense um and your priority waves are back to back so you catch the right, right all the way through hopefully without falling and then it's your turn on the left all the way through and even if you fall they come get you with the ski and then deposit you where the left is for your priority wave yeah and after your two priorities you sit and poach or try to poach yeah so then it's kind of like if you you then have to wait another four hours for your session which by the way is too long like I mean, the WSL did the best job they could do with organizing us, and they kept it very orderly. You can't ask for any more organization. But in the ocean, if you fall on a wave, you're like, oh, no big deal. I'll just grab another one and shake it off real quick. And usually, to be honest, I don't surf set waves the best. I surf the in-betweeners the best. The set wave, there's a lot of pressure, yeah. especially if, like, you're out the back and everybody's watching. You just you, you safety surf it off, or I do oftentimes. And, and we started this podcast off with the one minute, one minute to wave. And that's, as you mentioned, 
that's where the pressure starts to mount because you're in the lead pole position and you've got one minute and you're basically trying to get into a place of Zen where you're not thinking about, you know, am I going to fall? Am I going to catch this wave? And by the way, the wave's easy to catch. It's in not nearly opinion, as hard as I thought it was going to be. It's, it's way easier than the inland surf park. It's exactly, I mean, it's very similar to the ocean. When people ask how different was that wave than the ocean, or, how, or I'll ask you, how similar or dissimilar was the wave from the ocean? It's pretty similar. I mean, pretty it's similar. such a perfect hollow wave that the only time it gets dissimilar is if you run out onto the shoulder where an ocean wave will continue to have power out on yeah. the shoulder due to the molecular structure of the wave itself. And because this is a plow wave, all of the energy and yeah, all of the energy of the waves right in the pocket. So if you run out onto the shoulder, it bogs down pretty quick. The one element I hadn't, I only heard Alex Nost mention, and I think he was the one who clued me into this was the wave um, kind of builds up from your periphery, like 45 degree angle in your periphery. It's almost coming from underneath you. So in the ocean wave, you look down the line and you surf down the line and you can kind of make adjustments based on looking ahead. This, the adjustments are coming from underneath you. So on like my first wave, it was like kind of speed check turn off the top. And then I realized midway through the turn, it was kind of doubling up under me. And it was like, oh, have to make an adjustment. And then kind of like not quite free fall down into that barrel section where normally that double up barrel you see coming out in front of you. Yeah. This was like, oh, as I'm coming out of the turn, it's coming up from under me. Make that adjustment and then pull in, you know. Yeah. Um, That's so that, good insight. Yeah. It's a little bit different. It's very di <clears throat> Once you now have heard that, you can look at the footage and you'll see it. But I didn't notice it. There's a it. couple of waves that are similar to that, like swimming pools on Nemotu is kind of like that wave where it just kind of comes from really deep water and it, the whole all the energy is like right there. There's not a big shoulder and a big sweeping thing that you can look to for some guidance on what to do right. next. It's under your outside rail yeah. kind of. So you mentioned Inland Surf Park um, in Austin. You did a trip there a month or two prior. How much did that prepare you? for this experience? A lot. It prepared me a lot. I had, I had um, obviously, I knew the anxiety of waiting for the wave and hearing the train and hearing the, the mechanics of it. And okay, here it comes, you know. And so just getting used to that was a big help, right? Because I knew, okay, you know, and as I mentioned, the uh, Kelly Slater wave is way easier to catch, I think, because it's just a better wave. Yeah, The inland energy. one is kind of crumbly and You've really got to hug the fence where you didn't have to hug the fence as much with Kelly's. It okay. kind of breaks more in the um, middle of the of the pool itself. And um, yeah. Well, I agree. I, I totally um, made that assessment from the very first wave I saw you catch. I was like, oh, he has zero nerves. Like Scott's in like full rhythm with it, like as if he was in surfing his local break. Yeah. And you had like a look at the eye of the tiger too. There was one that you like flew down the line right past me. And I was like... Dude, Scott's got the eye. Like, Scott came with his A game. <laughs> Scott is fully prepared, whereas everybody else had, was, like, tentative. Like, not knowing if they should do a turn, if they should wait for the barrel. Yeah. There was, so, and I immediately attributed that to the Enlin experience because you told me at the Enlin experience that it took you a while to find your feet. Yeah. And then your buddy broke his leg. Yeah. And then the pool was empty and you got to surf free for all. I got a whole all. hour. Yeah. yeah. I caught every wave that came. I was the only one in the pool. I would I would recommend to anybody who ever gets an opportunity to surf Slater's pool, that would be the ultimate preparation. It would be. Yeah. Because Slater's pool is easy compared to that one. Yeah. And yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it. Plus, I've got a lot of ego 
You know, I've got a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of guys in the water that I respect, you know, like Matt, like I deeply respect Matt and I want Matt to see me in my best, you know, like yeah. there's a lot of ego there. I don't want to, I've never surfed with Jamie Brissick. I'm like, okay, I'm going to show Jamie what I got, you know, yeah. like here, let's do this, you know? And so I, I've surfed competitively for 20 something years, you know, years and years and years. So I kind of put on my, my, com my competitive mojo, like, okay, I'm here to do a job. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you that delivered, means dude. surfing, you know, you delivered and everybody was tripping. Like even that day you caught your plane home, we were all sitting around and one of your, somebody filmed. Oh, the other thing with filming, by the way, yeah, they didn't have a pro filmer. We were each kind of responsible for filming our own waves or partnering with somebody and having somebody else film. So the jet ski driver who is a lifeguard on the big wave world tour, super cool dude. Their entire staff was unbelievably totally gracious unbelievable. and, and cool yeah giving us tons of advice they would come you just flag them down from the side of the pool and in between waves they would swing over you could hop on the ski film as many or as little waves as you wanted to so anyways somebody had filmed one or two of your waves and it came up on the iphone when we were reviewing at the end of the day and everybody was tripping they're like bassy is ripping not only ripping styling so you delivered dude. yeah thanks that it's like I say, you know, all I got left is my hand jive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I maybe have a bottom turn and I just kind of throw my hands like that and away we go. And it looks cool. <laughs> it looks cool. Who'd you get that from? Uh, Tom Curran. Yeah. yeah. Tom Curran's always been the guy that I've sort of looked to. It's like, okay, if of I'm going to emulate somebody, it's going to be him. Oh, I always try. I just <clears throat> fail. Well, I, don't, I fail too. I don't, yeah. Dude, I don't measure up to him at all. But By the way, what did I see? I got to look it up. Uh he has a name. You know that skimboard he's been riding that has foam built on the top of it? Yeah. He named it. Oh, he named the skimboard. He posted an Instagram with it yesterday, and he's sure. like, he referred to it as Super Dave. <laughs> <laughs> that guy is hilarious. How good that is that? That guy is truly, truly like, he's kind of like Dave Letterman in a way. He's just so funny, that guy, man. I loved it. I was like, I've we've been watching him ride that skimboard for a couple <laughs> years now. The fact that he called it Super Dave That's added a, 10 times the amount of joy to the whole thing for it me. Did. Super Dave, such a good name. Um, so there was a bunch of boards there for us to ride, right? So I chose, you know, we all just kind of, there's a lineup of boards. So Everybody brought their own quiver. I didn't. I know. I, br I showed up without a wetsuit or a board. I know. <laughs> And there was wetsuits and boards there, lo and behold. And I no, rode a killer Hurley wetsuit. I loved that killer. That wetsuit was super nice, a Hurley buttery one. Yeah. And I rode an SKX, I think a Tomo SKX, right? Which is the Stewie Kennedy model. Okay. And it was probably 5'11 or something. I made sure to have plenty of foam. I don't want to be under foamed. And I, I was talking to somebody yesterday. I think any board works good on that wave. Like, did you see the footage of Joel Parkinson on a skimboard? Yes. I mean... That wave, I mean, we've seen Alex Nost on like the 70s retro single fin. We've seen guys on everything, you know, Elias. That wave is so perfect. It's kind of any board works. I think if anybody wants advice and they're going to go surf the pool, ride whatever you're comfortable with. Yes. Take the board that you feel comfortable Absolutely. with. Absolutely. So um, that board looked buttery. I told yeah. you the very first wave you got, I was like, dude, that board looks money. Yeah, like, I mean, it was. I loved it. I, I, I saw Daniel at Surf Expo and I told him, I showed him some footage and I was like, dude, I love that board. Yeah. It worked great, you know? Which was cool because we've seen those boards in the contest and like had curiosities about them. So it's nice that you had the opportunity. Uh, now, one thing I really wanted to know and I never got a chance to ask you, did you clarify in advance that there would be boards and wetsuits waiting for you to borrow? 
Yes. Okay, good. Dave, Dave Prodan told me. Because I was tripping. I was like, dude, you just winged it? Like, you just assumed? And it, you were right in your assumption that there would be, but I was like, that was bold. Why, thank you. But it wasn't at all that checked. Yeah. I would never... Well, we... It it's, wasn't obviously that careless because we talked in advance about boards. We were like, should I bring a whole quiver? Like, what do you do? It's a lot uh-huh. of pressure. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I don't think you can go wrong. I think David makes a great point. You just bring what you're comfortable with, for sure. Play it safe. Yeah. Yeah. Because guys uh, brought, like Zach and those guys brought a bunch of different boards and it just gets confusing. It really does. Yeah. Uh, and then once once you realize I'm only going to get four waves... I don't. I want to just stick with one board. I don't want to be swapping out boards. No. Get one wave and then think that it was the board's fault. Go make an adjustment and then you botch it again. You know. Yeah. Stick with what you're comfortable with. So, okay, I got a question. Another hypothetical, fun question. <clears throat> what dollar amount would you pay per wave if you got an invite back tomorrow, and they said, "Here's the dollar price. What is the limit for where you would say yes, I will pay that versus no, I won't." Um. I, I guess okay. So how many waves do I get to catch? Per, like nope, you that's a doll. Okay, so if I only catch one wave, it's X, and it's just that or or this will dictate how many you catch. This will be like okay, oh, this it's one. this price. I guess I can only afford one, or I'll buy ten at that price. Like what is um, what would you be willing to pay? Twenty bucks a wave. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because I just went snowboarding, and you know, lift tickets a hundred and let's say it's a hundred bucks, basically Where'd maybe ninety go? bucks. I went to Utah. Nice. Where? Snow Basin. Awesome. Yeah. Did you go with your boy? No. He's he's so old. He doesn't want to be with his dad anymore. Yeah. No, actually, he loves his dad, but he's <laughs> he's doing his own thing. No, but I did. There's a like we have a guys trip every Super Bowl oh, okay. weekend. We go up there. Um, but my point is, it's so let's say it's ninety bucks for a lift ticket, right? And how many runs do I get in? Do I get in four and a half good runs or? Let's say I get in six runs. I probably get in more than that, right? Way more, I would think. Well, no, at my age, I only, I'm kind of spoiled too. I'm just like, if the snow gets crappy, I'm out. You okay. know what I mean? So point is, is 20 bucks a wave. That's maybe a little bit high. It's funny. So, so I'm getting five waves for a hundred bucks. Okay. So you would do that? Five waves for a hundred bucks. Yeah. Okay. So, and, if, But it depends on your your economic status of course too, you know? Like, yeah, of course. So let me ask you Because I think you could sell it for way more. I think there's I a lot of rich surfers yes. that would pay way more. That You and I, I think, were discussing this the day of or yeah. somebody where I said, well, think about the country club yes. model, right? Where you pay um, $50,000 a year. And for the $50,000, you get, um, what was it? I, I think I said you get 10 waves a, a week. You get 10 waves a week for $50,000. So that's 40 waves a month for $50,000. I think you undervalued it. I think I did too. I just realized that. I I mean, honestly, I would not, I'm not in the economics group where I could actually do that, but I think they could price it at 300K a year. I agree because when you're at that level, when you're at 50 grand, 50 grand is like 500 bucks. There's definitely people who have that kind of money to throw away easily have 300 grand to throw out. There's definitely enough surfers on the coast. There's a lot of wealthy surfers. You're wealthy. You're wealthy. So there's enough at this point, anyways, there's enough wealthy people who surf who don't want to put in the hard yards to find perfect waves around the world who don't have the time to because they're job requirements. So they would pay the $300,000 a year country club fee, show up that day, still pay that day for the experience as well. 
just like you do at a golf club, pay for your lunch. No, golf. Oh, yeah, for the lunch, maybe. Golf clubs. But there's still fees. There's a monthly fee, yeah. yeah. And then even if you don't get your waves, you still pay the fee. Right. You know, like you're just 300 bucks, 300K a year just to be a part of this club. Yeah, exactly. Just to be a part. And then then it's like 600 bucks a month. And then it also limits how many people are actually in the pool. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you're paying premium, you get to show up and go surfing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm not advocating that this is what they should pursue. I'm just saying that's where it's at. That's where the demand, supply and demand is right now. Now, to answer the dollar per wave thing, I talked to Brissick about it too and Warshaw, and we landed on 100 bucks per wave. And I, I feel like that is overvalued a bit even though we just stated the country club model, it's overvalued strictly based on novelty. Like I feel that way now. Like if they said, if Dave said, Prodan said tomorrow, you can come and and it's a hundred bucks a wave. I would come tomorrow and pay that, but I wouldn't do it probably five years from now or even a year from now. The novelty of right now and the scarcity of it is upping the dollar amount. Absolutely. But on a practical level, I think 20 bucks would be tolerable for me. Yeah, the, sustainable. I guess sustainable. the question is, is 20 bucks tolerable to the spreadsheet, to the business it's cycle not. of this thing? Yeah, it's got to cost more than that. Especially if they can only Staffing. generate one wave every five minutes, yeah. which is currently what they're doing. Which, you know, look, the whole thing was unreal. We should also mention, and you sort of have how great the WSL staff was. The people that hired those people, the HR department there did a good job. The hospitality. Yeah, the hospitality was through the roof. And we had this beautiful sushi dinner, lunch, and you know beers. There's a hot tub. Everybody was just sitting in the hot tub. You guys are sucking down brews and laughing and having a good time and watching other guys ride. And, you know, it was kind of a cool situation. It um, they built the entire property to kind of focal focus on the main attraction, which is the pool. So all the buildings kind of open onto decks overlooking the pool. They have multiple buildings. They're all single level, kind of ranch style, real tastefully appointed like beautiful buildings um and then they have a kitchen on the property as well so they made breakfast lunch and everything was not only really good quality but healthy yeah they did a a killer killer job yeah uh i felt and then our lockers did have you mentioned the parking spot should have our names on it the lockers had our individual names on it yeah nice little touch that was cool there was a guitar in there there's a cool little chill zone where you can watch videos plenty of magazines to look at whole thing was unreal. Yeah. And, you know, we thanked Dave and the WSL. And, I, you know, I kind of feel like I can't thank them enough. No, I agree. It was really, really cool. I and, sent him each a bottle. And you know what else? Did you? Of course. Because I was going to do something like that, actually. I was going to do it. I was going to do a um, an amazing clubs thing where they get like a beer of the month or something. Yeah. But anyway... Point is, is that the P. I also think that the engineers, the like real nuts and bolts people behind the engineering of it, you know, probably don't get the accolades they deserve. But congratulations, because and I know everybody's already. This is late in coming, but you know, from Dave and I, we say thanks for putting in the hard work. You know, at ten years in, you know, they've been doing this, going at this thing, and man, the wave pool landscape is wide open. Like there is so much energy going on in this industry that it's fascinating. I mean, it's things are opening up, you know, like there's one opening in spring in Texas, in Waco. There's a wave pool. Whose pool is that? It's a wave garden pool. It's being, I think it's a wave garden pool. Let me, I could check. Um, 
but it's um, part of, there's already a wakeboard pool there. And so they're adding on another element. They have these, they have these pool pulley wake parks where there's no boats. They're just pulleys and you, and they're going to be opening. And I, again, I think it's a wave garden pool technology, which uh, I'm not sure if it's similar or not. I should know that. So super secret rumor Mm -hmm. reveal right now. Yes. I heard that they've already broken ground on a KS pool in in Tokyo. Oh, oh, no, that's true. Yes. You didn't? You heard that too? Yes. Okay. They're doing that and they are, um, there's, I've heard there's one being built in Houston. I don't know where they are in the stages of that. And we know there's one in Florida and I wouldn't be surprised if there's, as we speak, there's, you know, negotiations and bankers and developers that are having meetings about building these things in other areas of North America. Obviously and around the world too. Like oh, for ob- sure. But obviously I'm just saying- those meetings and like they're the business model is to sell pools or to license the technology to build the pools. I don't know that somebody else. I've, I've, I think you and I spoke about this, but I've heard through the grapevine. And again, this is total, this has no basis. In fact, this is full parking lot rumor. But some of the parking lots that that you and I um, congregate in have some industry people in them, you know, and so I hear things, you know, and I've heard that that they're going to have an entire tour based around the Kelly Slater Wave Park. Really? Yeah. The WSL is going to have a tour. That's now, their goal. again, total based in nothing but parking lot fodder, but from some sources that are somewhat well connected. Yeah. Interesting. Well, the um, the Florida pool, obviously, they sent out a press release and acknowledged that that permit had been approved and that they were planning to build it. Nobody said anything about Tokyo yet other than that they hope. I think Sophie Goldschmidt mentioned that she hopes that they can have something in place in time for the Olympics. They but will. I heard that they've already broken ground on that it. That would not surprise me yeah. at all. And we're in what has really happened is we're we're in sort of a space race right yes, now. That's totally. the feeling I get. Like everyone's really ramping it up and there's, they broke ground in Australia for a wave pool there. I think it's wave garden technology. No, is it? Or is I it believe the, so. um, is it I the one that Aki's involved in or I don't know. Isn't that the wave cove, garden? the cove that's wave garden. Is it? Yeah. Oh, um, sorry. I'm searching my here. Okay. I'm going to give you, I've got some insight here. There's an HBO special. I don't know if you've seen oh, it or not. No, I missed it. It's an in-depth it. look at Kelly Slater and his creation in the wave pool on HBO. Um, the Wave VB Venture Realty Group has proposed a unique project that would transform an area, a site in Virginia Beach, into an exciting year-round destination for locals and tourists. Pharrell Williams of all people, as a partner in this project. You know, the singer, Grammy yes, award-winning singer. Um, the BSR, which is the one in Waco, that's on track for a springtime opening. Um, $60 per hour and season passes for 1000 bucks. Hmm. They'll begin testing the wave there in Texas in March. Um, some other stuff, real quick. Let me just rip through these. Urban Surf Sydney's application was approved and they'll be breaking ground in 2018. Urban Surf Sydney. I've 
got a listener question for you. Oh, by the way, sorry. BSR in Texas is the perfect swell infinite ocean build out, which is by American Wave Machines. I want to make sure I get those guys. So, yeah, American Wave Machines is building the one in Texas. Listener submitted question um, was what has ever happened or is happening with artificial reefs? Like, it seems you're shaken now. Well, the problem with that is you, you run into just nightmares of bureaucratic environmental red tape. Yeah. And, and maybe for the right reasons. I'm, I'm not saying it's good nor is it bad, but if you try to put something in the ocean, you're going up against some pretty gnarly lobbies like with, um, you know, um, who's the real big environmental group? Um, uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of it. But Well, I could imagine it being a nightmare. Oh, the Sierra Club. So I, you're going to go up against major, major lobbies. Which And the interesting thing is, like, the diving community has gotten around this. They're like, let's take this old boat and sink it, and it'll be a great reef for diving. And everybody's like, yay! Let's do it. Like, nope, they don't <laughs> run into any problems. But as soon as you go, let's dump a reef for surfing, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And maybe it's because you're now dealing with sand flow and erosion and you're changing you know the geology of the local beaches and whereas a reef that's 300 you know let's say it's a mile or two miles offshore and you just drop it in some deep water it's like okay yeah it's cool it's not that big a deal sure um i could see it being a huge issue to work around in the u.s but i could i was thinking like some i don't know some uh lesser developed country who could really benefit from the tourism dollars, I would think that they would cut through a lot of that. Oh yeah. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. They'd they'd be like, who cares? Right. Surf lakes in Australia is well into their first build of a full scale prototype in Queensland. And they've set an estimated completion time frame of April, 2018. Yeah. That's what. And they're actively searching for people to license their, their technology and so you can see that there certainly is this sort of space race where there's just stuff happening all over, man. Yeah. People are breaking ground. People are developing. People are, you know, it's happening. You know, like it's on. Only two will survive. Perhaps. As far as, as pro- I'm concerned. That's probably true. You know, that's yeah. probably correct, you know. Um, it's uh, kind of like Bitcoin. It's like. Everybody was all in, and now it's taken a big fall, and who's left standing? You know? I think, um, I mean, they, they mentioned, Prodan mentioned that pool, Kelly's pool in Lemoore, was a wave ski lake. You know? yeah. And so it's like, I'm sure there was a ton of people who thought that was a great idea back in the 80s to dump a bunch of money into that. Yeah, you'd think there'd be more water skiers than surfers. but Water ski lake, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah. A water ski lake, yeah. Yeah, so... When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. 
more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Scott. Well, um, I, have we exhausted our time at Lemoore? Oh, it'll continue to come up, I'm sure, <laughs> endlessly. I was just curious. You borrowed um, that Scrivy asymmetrical last time we met. Yeah. Did you get a chance to write yeah, it? Yeah, I wrote it. It's too small for me. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Okay. I tried to, I, you know, I caught five or six waves on it, and it was just so small. Um, I was just having a problem even paddling it around. Yeah. That's what I found, too, is it felt uncomfortable, like, to paddle, but once I got up, it felt super scary. Yeah, when I was on the wave, you know, I just felt I was struggling. Yeah, you know, and and it's nothing about the design. I'd love to get a board from him that had a little more volume. Right, but I'm 52 years old. I'm in really good shape, but 52 is 52. Did you say really good or burly good? Burly good. Burly good. No, shape. I'm, I'm in re- burly good. That's code for you know beer belly. No, I'm in. I mean. I guess what I'm saying is, look, I need a little bit more foam than your average, sure. even a 40 year old, you know, it's like once yeah. you reach 50, I just need to get going, you know, I hear you. Um, we've got lots of stuff happening in regard to the WSL. Oh my God. I know. I, it's yeah. Begin because it's didn't we didn't. Yes. Didn't I tell you that you did. There was some politics happening behind the scenes. You absolutely did. And we will. Next time we get together, we will preview the Snapper event because that will be right around the corner from our next recording. But this is pre-pre-Snapper. Look, a dispute over permitting is going to jeopardize and is jeopardizing as we speak World Surf League WCT events on the North Shore. Um, At stake right now is the Billabong Pipe Masters, which WSL officials want to move from its traditional window in December to January which the WSL um, has already applied to reserve the permit for with a different event, the Sunset Open. So they have the events, they just want to swap them. Right. And um, WSL officials are saying that, look, this would involve no increase in competition length or days. They just want to flip these things. They also want to bring the Maui Women's Pro from Maui and, and kind of put it into the envelope or underneath the umbrella of the Vans World Cup at Sunset Beach. And... Um, in order to do a lot of this, the WSL is asking for the mayor of the city and county of Honolulu to sort of pay attention to them. And and this is where it gets sticky in that um, the WSL is saying, look, we've been keeping the city and county up to date. Um, we raised this issue with them almost a year ago. So none of this stuff should come as a surprise. But according to Mayor Kevin Caldwell's spokesperson, the WSL official showed up at his office unannounced after missing a November 9th deadline to amend their permit. A spokesperson for the mayor, not the mayor himself, believes that the WSL is trying to strong arm the city 
into meeting its demands before it has even secured the necessary permits, but that the city is going to, quote, stick to its rules. So Sophie Goldschmidt, CEO of the WSL, flew to Honolulu last week in hopes of discussing this issue with the mayor, Kirk Caldwell, but instead was met with Ernie Martin, council member for the North Shore District, and Ann Kobayashi, the chair of the Parks and Recs Committee. So right there, that tells you a lot. Yep. CEO of the WSL flies over to meet with the city, the mayor, and the mayor's like, nope, not available. Meet with my underlings. And that's a slap in the face. And the WSL has a 50-year relationship with Oahu. Not really. In well, my the opinion, WSL. they don't. Sophie, Sophie Goldschmidt is a newcomer. And that's where some of this gets sticky. You know who had a relationship? Randy Rarick. Yes. Randy Rarick is no longer involved. And that was an opening for the opposition to the WSL being on the North Shore, wherever that opposition comes from. But it's there's some players on the ground there that are like, oh, Rarick's no longer involved. He was the one that we had that, that was sort of blocking us. Now that he's out of the way, we're going to go in there and we're going to get in there with the mayor and the city and the county because I've got a brother who's got an uncle who's got a sister and they're all involved in it. And there's politics that are deeply seated and deeply rooted that saw Randy Rarick being not involved anymore as an opportunity to get in the ear of the politicians. And they have done that. You sound like you're speaking with some insider knowledge and not just rumor. No. You like to reveal no. any... That's just a known thing. Okay. Like, if you're in the know on the politics of the situation there, um, there was a void. When Randy left, and uh, and even to some degree, Paul Speaker, when they left and, and there was a void, a power, not a, there was an opportunity for the politics, for the influencers of the North Shore to get into to file permits, to, to do what they needed to do, to, to basically, you just got to go to City Hall and you got to bang the bell and bang the bell and go, hey, we're here, we've been here, we're, we're locals on the North Shore and this is what we want and this is how we see it should go and you should listen to us because my sister's brother's uncle works with you or is okay. embedded in, you know. So who's, what interests are they representing? Who is that group? Well, I think they represent a few different interests. I think there's, I don't know who the group is, but I think there's probably, and again, I don't know. This is just me kind of winging it, just knowing how things, you know, I went to the North Shore every year for nine years at, when I worked with Surfer Magazine. So there's probably a group of people that are like, we don't want any surf competitions on the North Shore. There's too much traffic. It's not as much of an economic boon as they say there is. Or it's not benefiting me directly. Or it's not benefit. Yeah, people are parking and pissing on my lawn. Right. Like it's literally NIMBYs, not in my backyard types, yeah. right? That's one group. Then there's another group who want who see the value in those permits and want those permits. And they're probably local competition organization types, whoever that might be. They're like, hey, we want those permits. We want the local surfers to benefit. We're sick of people flying in here and the local surfers don't benefit from all. We can have these contests and get marketing dollars out of people and have Red Bull do it. But it's our local guys and why shouldn't it be? And look how great the... The um, Dahui backdoor shootout was all of our local guys got to benefit from it and everybody around the world watched it. And we want that. We want those permits. So there's that group. Right. And, and then there's probably another group of people that are like, who knows, you know, yeah. like bodyboard, comp, you know, bodyboard 
interests that, you know, who knows? But the point is, is that those groups are out there and they are banging the bell and they are very well connected and they understand the permitting process. They understand how it all goes down and they see this new person coming in and just thinks that, that they can come in because they're the quote unquote, you know, WSL and they've been here for 50 years. Well, it's not that simple in Hawaii. Yeah. Believe me, this is not the city of Laguna Beach. You know, this is this is a pretty big deal, you know. Yeah. Um, and here's my take on it. And yeah. I kind of mentioned this, but I'll just I'll just read what I wrote here. Is that you've got to understand the WSL is dealing with the state of Hawaii bureaucracy, long, slow, sloth-like bureaucracy. All paperwork needs to be in way ahead of time. Yes, phone calls are answered, but that does not start the process. I in, in the business world, you pick up the phone and you go, hey, this is the CEO of blah, blah, blah company. I want to speak to the other CEO of blah, blah. And that phone call means a lot to private enterprise. They, we made a contact. We made a phone call. We jotted it in our calendar. My secretary sent you an email um, basically backing up all the points that we made on the phone. And yes, we're doing business together. Well, in state bureaucracy, when the phone gets answered, it gets hung back up and there's nothing that actually gets jotted down until permits and paperwork is processed and there's a stamp put on the paperwork that says, yeah, we received their paperwork. Now we will begin the processing. You know, it's here's, here's the problem with that. Yeah. You're right. That, that should be the way things operate or that is the way things operate in a lot of uh, political arenas. However, money matters as much in politics as it does in private enterprise. And there was an article in the Star Advisor in Honolulu saying as much, saying, hey, it's funny because Kirk, what's his name? Caldwell. Kirk Caldwell's policy is, yeah, like we will accommodate business. He's done it with the NFL when they wanted to serve alcohol at Queens Beach as part of the Pro Bowl. They swiftly plowed through an apparently conflicting long-standing ordinance to grant an exception to the NFL to serve alcohol. They did it last summer when debuting, I think they called it Bicky, which mm-hmm. was a bike sharing program where they rolled out a thousand bikes without required registration and the city hurriedly rolled up their sleeves oh, and worked with the Honolulu I, Police Department totally to allow this grace period. No, so I he's totally, like, he's bending over backwards to do it for these other entities. Absolutely. And, and uh, if I can finish my take, I totally agree. I'm just... I'm just saying that there was some part of this report where the WSL was like, hey, we called them. Yeah, exactly. And and I'm saying that's not good enough. No, there's a out. discrepancy there. Hear me out. You've got to start the paperwork and you've got to plan for the worst and you've got to plan ahead and just do the, the stupid bureaucracy. Like put in the papers, get the permits started, right? Then what you need to do is you need to find the influencers and you need to schmooze them. You need to find somebody at the city in the county that needs to be wined and dined. Did you bring them to this year's pipe event and kiss their ass? Because you got to do that. You've got to buddy up with the mayor's administrative assistant. You've got to find their pain. You got to put a band aid on it. You got to find out if this assistant likes what do they do in their free time? Maybe she or he likes fishing or knitting or clogging. I don't know, but you've got to find out what it is and you've got to make them feel special. This is the politics in the state of Hawaii. You need an advocate that's on the inside. The NFL figured that out and did that. The bike event did that. The WSL, did they do that? I'm not sure. I'm not saying they did or they didn't, but it feels like 
the city and county has already been wined and dined by the opposite, by the opposing uh, entity in this in this situation, whether it be the NIMBYs or whether it be other c entities that want to put on surf contests and hold those permits. They've they lost their ability to get in with the mayor, quite obviously, because the mayor is putting up a big stop sign. Right. That is what is evident, is that the mayor is putting up a stop sign. Um, so there... I would go so far I, as to say there might be some misogyny at play here. That they see some... They see a Brit woman coming into Hawaii where it's old Brada network. And they're like, who is this chick? Hmm. And maybe that's a reach, but... Uh, there's... I wouldn't, you know... There's, of course, you're not going to see that on the outside. Of course. There's a lot of discrepancy about whether or not they even missed the deadline to file the permits. Um, Sonny Garcia is saying that. No. Yeah, I've got it right here. Sonny's like, so go, good. Go ahead and since we always, read it. I'll read it. Yeah, since we always. Um, so this is Sonny really, Garcia's since, Instagram, who's an advocate for the WSL and wants to see the WSL shine on the North Shore, as we all do. And yeah, and we always really. Um, Love Sonny's take on well, he's brutally honest on, on politics, which is which is great. He says, "Wow, this is kind of a mo um, this kind of moment could be lost for the next generation of Hawaiian kids, all because old grudges and hurt egos of Kirk Caldwell, mayor of Honolulu, who won't talk to us, but told the news we were strong arming him when we were coming by his office to ask for a meeting to try to come up with a solution to red tape affecting event permits. And for the record, no deadlines were missed." Since he wouldn't meet with us, we thought it made sense to stop by the office and ask for a meeting since he is our mayor and it is his duty to look out for the best interests and advocate for us. But instead, he's twisting the facts and telling Hawaii surfers and the surf community that he doesn't want to help us out. A lot of facts are being thrown around by the mayor or a lot of facts being thrown around by the mayor are very misleading. And it's a in huge injustice that the man elected to protect surfers and the surf community won't help us. Yet the matter at hand here is that Hawaiian surfers and the surf industry are on the brink of losing all the biggest surf events in the world here in our backyard and the tourism that comes with it. So it's a huge loss for all of Hawaii and the surfing world for that matter. What's really sad to see is all the comments coming from a lot of people in the surf community saying they are for the Hawaiians but are not able to put their money where their mouth is and will not be here to pick up the slack should the WSL take their events elsewhere. Well... You know, so the question is, who's in the mayor's pocket? And I don't mean fiscally. I mean, I'm not saying there's some, like, kickback. I'm just saying somebody's got the mayor's attention that's opposing the WSL, obviously. Who is that? Monsanto. What, what is this grudge? What is this grudge that he speaks of? The first thing he says is there are old grudges and a hurt ego of the mayor. So why does the mayor have a grudge that's old? I want to know, where did that happen? Did, did Paul Speaker go in there and throw around the, the you know... Got too big shot, got too big league with the mayor, and the mayor's like, screw the WSL. Screw that Paul Speaker guy. I don't care who's in charge. Yeah. I don't know that. I'm just wondering, if there's an old grudge, what is it that Sonny's right. talking about? I would like to know. You know, it certainly wasn't – I can't imagine it was a grudge with Rarick. He he had it going on. Rarick leaves, and now there's a grudge. That's what I'm getting from this. Yeah. The, the mayor's office doesn't like the WSL. Find out, Scott. Well, I mean, it's no secret that Paul Speaker had a pretty big – he came in kind of expecting the world and thought he was a big shot. Maybe he is. And so that's the only thing I can suggest is, was it speaker? I don't know. 
But why is there a grudge hey, against the WSL? Where did that start? We talk about wanting investigative journalism and surfing. I don't get paid. Dig I'm, just, in. I'm the guy that I'm pointing the journalist in the right direction. No, I say you dig in. Why? Are you, how much, how much are you going to pay me? Here's what we'll do. You write the story and we'll crowdfund it. We'll charge people 10 <laughs> bucks a pop to read it. <laughs> uh, look, I want the WSL to succeed here. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying. I'm just... If there's a grudge, I want to know what, where, why. I agree. What is the mayor? We all do. Somebody needs, and this is a job for the Honolulu Star Bolton. Get those, what grudge? Yeah. Ask Sonny Garcia, what's the grudge? Yeah. Um, well, so we talked about, they are, it seems like the WSL is divesting out of Hawaii and they want to finish the season in Indonesia. This is why, like, obviously we all think that, um, pipeline is the ultimate wave on the planet and that's where everything Well, the Vulcan end. Pipe Pro proved that. Totally. That event was incredible. It was nonstop. I had it up with the Super Bowl. I was watching the Super Bowl on one screen and the Vulcan Pipe Pro on the other, and it was mentally good. It was as good a pipe as I've ever seen. I mean, it was so consistent. It was just nonstop perfection. Perfection, but also death defying. Like, yes. you know, like proper. Well, yeah. That's what I mean when I say perfection. Yeah. A yeah. pipe that it's got to be. You know what I loved? Defined. You know what I loved about that event was how many um, surfers rose out of nothingness or like a certain obscurity and anonymity to stake their claim. Like guys like Cam Richards, who, you know, like we've seen Cam Richards flinging crazy airs, but he doesn't have a lot of experience out at pipe. He even admitted in one of his posting interviews, he's like, dude, I never get waves out there. Like this is all new to me. Yet he was throwing, hucking himself over the ledge and getting nine point rides repeatedly. Like that's radical. There was a number of guys doing that. This drama with the WSL only affects WCT events. I think the landscape is going to look like this. There's going to be a lot of QS 5,000s, not 10,000s, 5,000s. And what it's going to do, and, I, and I'm suggesting to you that some, perhaps the entity that is opposing the WCT on the North Shore is also an entity that's promoting local Hawaiian surfers get their events for them, like the Volcom Pipe Pro, even though I know it's QS. I would think that Sonny then would not uh, write what he wrote on Instagram. If this was a groundswell for the local surfers. Well, all of these events only affect WCT permits. Yeah. I mean, all of these, all of the issue is surrounding WCT Yeah, but if you're going to take out the serpent, you go for the head. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess we wait and see, you know, but do you, my question to you is, do you think this will get resolved? Do you think that there's been enough um, Look, I don't know brow that- beating and enough, you know, smoke in the air now that everyone's kind of like, okay, let's take a step back. Let's take a deep breath and let's approach this the way businesses and, and, and I'm this, you're asking me in my opinion, whether I think it'll get resolved and I have zero insight into any of it. I will say, no, I don't think it'll get resolved. I think, um, I don't know if the WSL wants it to get resolved, to be honest, if you are a company like the WSL and you're doing business and somebody is ungrateful for the business and forcing you to find new avenues and they start building those new avenues, whether it's in Indonesia or elsewhere, they're devoting a bunch of energy and attention towards that. They realize, hey, you know what? Maybe we don't need the North Shore as much as Honolulu thinks that we do. And by the way, we've given them business for 50 years. Like, if you guys aren't grateful for that, if you want to strong arm us and get us out of here, and you never seemed 
you always made us make a special accommodation for you anyway. I don't like the business that we're doing there. So I'm going to go do business over here. And I mentioned to you, mentioned this to you before. Yes, Hawaii is a super important part of our legacy as surfers, as is pipeline, certainly since the 70s. But guess what? Surfing might exist for another 500 years. And this last 40 years will look like a drop in the bucket. So we can start building those inroads now, whether it is Indonesia or we go find a crazy wave elsewhere that becomes the pinnacle of our sport. And let's build those inroads. Let's build into that community. And maybe we can even buy the property around that space and own that space, just like we have with the wave pool. Like that's the road that the WSL needs to start looking at. And it won't be the first time that an iconic surf event was just left in the dust. The Duke event used to be the event that all of the surfers in the world went, "This this is the pinnacle. If you can win the Duke, you've won it all. And that event just got left by the wayside through some, you know, BS, some more of what we see here, some more, you know, underneath the the fountain at Disneyland political BS and the Duke event is no longer. And people don't even remember the Duke event. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a 30 year old guy, you don't even, you didn't even know that the Duke event was a big ass deal. It honestly, the amount of pride and hubris kind of displayed in situations like this always shocks me because if you look at history as an example from who like Harvey Weinstein running Hollywood thinking that he was, you know, and now being completely disgraced or Rome ruling the world. Nobody would have ever thought that Rome would have fallen. Things fall. Things always fall. And it's due to pride. What do you think about the political capital here, though, with the mayor? Like the mayor's got to be looking. I don't know when he's going to get reelected, if he's even up for reelection. I don't know. He is in his Instagram uh, caption. It says like, 2018 yeah something like that i'll look so, it up while we're talking so that tells me that there's that there's some political capital behind this if he's really gonna put his foot on the you know like basically draw a line in the sand and say no they're trying to strong army and this is about the community and we're going to get the community's input and we're going to do what's fair and we're going to do it by the rules behind that is somebody's giving him some money that's going to do we're going to get you reelected. you got to be on our side here and i don't know if that's like what it is is it a, you mentioned monsanto is it a developer from turtle bay it's like hey man we, we want to develop this out and make it a golf destination and the surf thing is getting in our way people don't want to come here because the traffic's not i don't know i'm just throwing i have no idea what the landscape looks like yeah. there's people that are live there that understand this way deeper than i am We'd, i'd love to hear from them but there's got to be some political reasoning behind this for the mayor he can't just be yeah. doing this on some sort of ethical <laughs> stand you know yeah Interesting. Well, the WSL got a new head judge. I know. I saw that. Does that interest you at all? Uh, it kind of does, actually. Um, I mean, it's worth mentioning for sure. It is. It's something that I think I need to see play out through the year. Did, I don't necessarily think that judging was, you know, when you think about the past year, you weren't like ever going, Oh, floater gate. You know, there wasn't some, was there some major judging mishap? I think Richie Porter did a good job. I mean, the one that comes to mind is Gabriel blocking Kelly at the pipe masters on the. Right yeah. Look, there's that situ- situations, situations are going to arise, but I mean, there wasn't some overriding. No, we've got to get a new head judge. No. And, and it says as much here that, you know, Richie Porter did a good job and he's going to have another role with the WSL. So good for him. Yeah, I, he's I, not, he's stepping away from head judge, but not, right. not, getting fired or right. anything like that. And good. I mean, I, I'm sure that Richie Porter 
did a great job. That's my point. I don't recall some like everybody yeah. calling for his head or anything. No, no, no. So this new guy's got a new job. His name is the Pratimo Arendt. Pratimo Arendt. That's an interesting name. Is he Brazilian? I could not quite figure it out. Pratimo is like Spanish or Spanish or Italian or something, Arendt? but then Arendt, I'm not sure. But I clicked over and checked him out on Instagram. He shreds, dude. Oh, I'm sure he surfs. He good. surfs really well. He's yeah. um brings nineteen year or nineteen years of experience to the WSL. He began as a touring judge at age twenty one and was key to modifying the judging criteria towards to reward progressive maneuvers. Uh, maneuvers. <laughs> Aaron's vast knowledge <laughs> and foresight will be valuable in evolving the judging criteria in step with the progression of the world's best surfers. Well, so congratulations to Pratimo. Yeah. We're going to be saying that name a lot more. Yeah, I and, like it. Um, congratulations to Richie Porter for a job well done in some what would could be characterized as a sometimes um, sticky situation to be in. I don't think this is an easy job. Oh, it's a thankless job. It's, yeah, it's you the one. I mean, you criticized. and I skewer constantly. We well, will skewer and we will never. You only get criticized yeah. when you do it wrong. And if you do it right, nobody pats you on the back. Exactly. So, so good luck. I think Pratimo. Richie Porta did it right for a long time. So congratulations to my, Richie Porta and good luck to Pratimo. My favorite thing Pratama? about Pratamo? Pratamo. No, T-I-M-O. T-A-M-O. Really? P-R-I-T-A-M-O. Pratamo. Oh, my bad. Sorry, Pratamo. Pratamo Erent my from favorite, Brazil. My favorite thing was his um, Instagram handle is, what is a Pratamo? Wow. It's a little... What is a Pratamo? That's a good question. We would like to know. Little Lord Fauntleroy. Add that, add that to your investigative journalism list, Scott. <laughs> there is no such thing as surf journalism. I thought we went through this already. Nope. It's back on the table. There's just journalism. Back on the table. Um... Number of things in Webland, Scott, that I want you to check out. Yes. Taylor Knox in Apply apply Pressure. Did you watch this video of Taylor Knox surfing? No. Dude, brand new vid. He has not missed a step. Taylor Knox looks as gnarly as he did in Taylor Steele films from the 90s. That's so cool. I um, I should mention that I interviewed Pat Steele. Oh, gosh. How did Taylor Steele's dad just wrote a new book, and that's going to be at the end of this podcast. Yes. We're going to attach... My interview with Pat Steele, Stick again, around. Taylor Steele's father from uh, Taylor Steele from the Momentum of Fame. Yeah, the, the, he wrote an, a book about Scorpion Bay? No, it's not about Scorpion Bay. It's well, titled Scorpion Bay. It's actually about a gentleman. Um, his, basically his, there's a lot of themes that run through this book, um, but the book's about um, searching and... Um, and spirituality. Hmm. Yeah. it's Don't get fooled by the title. It's not about surfing at all. But is it set in Scorpion Bay? No. He just loved the name Scorpion Bay? I don't know. <laughs> he even told me, he goes, it might not have been the best name now that I look back on it, but it's not about surfing. It's about uh, three or four characters that, that weave through in and out of this storyline that eventually come together. Okay. And uh, there's a lot of really cool themes, not the least of which is um, sort of, father son prodigal son type of thing um and family values and hard work and there's a ton of drugs lots some bikers some crystal meth some 
a lot of hookers and whores. It's a pretty interesting book. There's, okay. there's, it's definitely worth a look, and I'm enjoying it. Okay, cool. Well, that interview is coming up at the end of today's episode, or at the last portion of today's episode. So one of the other things... So I'm watching Apply Pressure right now dude, on Vimeo. Crazy. Like, Taylor Knox is so gnarly. He's still. always been really... The Buried Rail Society. You know, this guy knows how to bury the rail. And I'm, but oh, hasn't, my. Look hasn't at missed a beat. No, he right? hasn't. He's really... Since he left the tour, I think he's gotten into this real fitness. Not that he wasn't always fit, but he's in this real fitness thing. And he is. He's like, 50's the new 40. Totally. You know? And I, I surf with Taylor occasionally in the wintertime in San Diego, and I've seen his act. And it's obviously, from what I'm seeing here, So he looks like he's 35. We will post that video, Apply Pressure, on spitpodcast.com. I'm also going to post Cam Richards in 22 because Cam, again, the... Vulcan Pipe Pro performance was gnarly. And then Visla just put out a new video that's definitely worth watching. And then one of the best videos I've seen in the last couple of weeks, Scott, is Dave Rastovich by Nathan Oldfield in a short called Quivered. Yes. And Rasta's analyzing this. a quiver of boards shaped by Gary McNeil. Yes. Who's I a body this. of yours. Yeah. Gary's going to be at the boardroom um, May 5th and 6th here in Del Mar. And yeah, Gary will be there, so you can order boards from Gary and see all his stuff. But I watched Quivered because, as you know, I'm a huge fan of great surfing style, and Dave's got one of the best, if not the best. And Taylor's, I'm watching Taylor. Taylor is also obviously from the school of Tom Curran and has just a fabulous bottom turn, top turn combination. And he's he is the president of the Buried Rail Society. This guy knows how to do a turn and uh, so super smooth and buttery. The uh, Rasta, yeah. what I liked about the thing is he actually discusses each of the boards. Yes. Rasta's really articulate. Oh, for sure. Oh, no. Super smart. I don't guy. think I really realized that. Oh, before. yeah. No, no. Super smart. Like, not only articulate, but. Well-spoken. Knows a lot about board design. Oh, yeah. So, it's like, you look at him surfing, and they show him on each of the boards while he's talking about it, and it's like, he surfs the board as well as it can be surfed, and then knows exactly why. Like, hey, this little you know, line on the rail does this in the water. And then I put these straight up keel fins because of this. And it's really, really, um, I thought informative. So it looks like Taylor Knox is surfing down in Ensenada. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we name spots. No, we don't. We just name cities. Um, (laughs) so quivered Rasta. He knows what he's talking about. Podcast.com. Now, Scott, last night I committed 90 minutes to watching a surf documentary. Oh, you talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll in Scorpion Bay, the book? Yeah. Bunker 77. Really? Didn't we poo-poo this? No, you did. Oh, I did. No, did you I didn't even it? see it, though. Right. You watched the you watched the trailer. You, I don't think you even watched the trailer. <laughs> I told you about I the forget. trailer. I am so sorry, producer of this movie. Is it any good? It's it's very good. Very good. It's very good. What did we learn about Bunker? Let me just say, let me tell you what I think it's about. And then tell me if I'm going to learn anything. So Bunker Spreckles was the heir to the Spreckles sugar um, money, right? Inheritance. He inherited a bunch of money. And he was sort of the poster child for trying new stuff, new surfboard designs, um, cutting edge. um, And he was a cutting edge guy who, because he had a lot of money, broke a lot of rules, did a lot of drugs. Um, traveled around the world and was rather flamboyant and sort of a Hollywood sex symbol. The first Hollywood sex symbol surf guy that went crazy and, and did things his own way and um, and died from ex- the excesses of this lifestyle. Yep. Now, I have not seen the movie. No need to now. <laughs> 
You nailed it. Did I? No. I mean, yes, kind of. I mean, that is um, doing it a disservice to sum it up that quickly, but it is an We're, accurate let me ask you this. synopsis. Did you come away with it going, I want to be like Bunker? Definitely not. Okay. No. But it's a fascinating portrait of a very interesting character. Yeah. He was definitely... Um, outside the box for the era that he was in. He was cut from a little different cloth. Surfers are generally very conservative. We kind of do what everyone else is doing. And if you go outside of those parameters, you're sort of looked at as, but when you've got enough money to not worry about it, then all of a sudden everyone's going, hey, let's party with Bunker. Yeah. He's got the money. He's got the drugs. Let's party. So Takuji Masuda is the filmmaker, writer, director, and Edward Norton is on the producer credits. It was um, narrated by Mike Judge, believe it or not. So really kind of a lot of Hollywood backing in this film. And one thing you didn't mention is Bunker was also the stepson to Clark Gable. Right. So his mother married into the Spreckles' sugar fortune. And then his father, Bunker's father, died when I think he was seven years old. And that obviously had a traumatic effect on Bunker. His mother then married Clark Gable after Clark Gable had become like Hollywood super international superstar. Bunker grew up in Encino, didn't really know. You know, it's just like, oh, everybody's dad is this famous or whatever. And then kind of coming of age, realized that's not necessarily the case. He ended up hooking up with Mickey Dora in Malibu and he idolized Mickey Dora. Mickey Dora essentially um, exploited Bunker <laughs> yeah. because of his money and Hollywood connections and yeah. all that. And Bunker just wanted to be cool like Mickey. Yeah. Bunker ends up finding himself on the North Shore, lives um, in the hills, up basically in the jungle by himself, living off fruit for a number of years up until he was 21. And like really when they do a lot of really kind of in-depth interviews with Laird Hamilton and um, – a bunch of people who are involved in that time. And they were like, Bunker was the man. Like you said, Why? that famous art brewer. Cause he was surfing really interesting boards, super short boards that became the norm right. 30 right. years later, right. riding really short boards, had a really radical style, was kind of on the fringe of um, board design and even just eccentric style and flamboyance on the wave. And he was not doing drugs, not doing alcohol up through his late teens. And then he was going to go back to California and collect his inheritance. It was like, when I turn 21, I get this oh. millions of dollars payout. And so the, the movie, just from a structure standpoint, is told through um, interviews that Craig Stesick did with Bunker a few weeks before he died. Oh. And that is the through line. Did they know he was going to die? Did no. He have... No. Oh. But... Craig Stesick and a number of some other magazines also Phil Jarrett mm -hmm. did like this interview with him a couple weeks before he died. Craig did these kind of three hour long audio interviews. So that is the through line throughout that they keep coming to with Bunker reflecting on his life. But then they cut to modern day interviews with the people who knew him. And so the first half of the film is excellent. The second half for me not as excellent and really more of a reflection of the dark times that you're talking about. And it just became sad. But the first half for me, I thought is definitely worth watching. Did the filmmakers glorify the drug taking or did, did they, no. was it a lesson to be learned for the people that watched the film that this was a bad way to go? I don't think the filmmakers took a stance on it one way or the other. Did they glorify his alcohol and drug taking? No. Wasn't he famous for like B12 shots or something? 
They didn't mention that. Oh, they didn't. Oh. But basically that first half of the film, just showing this, you know, youthful kid with what, all the potential in the what world. What led him to be to, to the dark place? Well, you could argue um, losing a parent at a young age might have adverse sure, effects on you. Sure. He lost Clark Gable as well. His step, everybody who knew Clark said that guy was an excellent father mm-hmm. and like a great human being. He loved his mom, loved Bunker's mom, all that sort of stuff. Everybody had glow. So he lost Clark at a certain age as well. And then of course he was an outcast. Surfing was such a fringe sport back at the late sixties. Yeah. He was doing that. And his parents wanted him to take over the sugar fortune. They were like, look, yeah. you are the last Spreckles male heir. Yeah. You need to come wear a suit and run this dynasty. Right. And he was a surfer who always felt like he was never fully appreciated by his family. And then they dumped millions of dollars on him. And, um, it was also the acid thing was coming in, you know, that mm-hmm. was influencing surf culture. So he got involved in drugs and it just, it all went kind of sideways. So that second half of the film documents that I don't think it glorifies it at all. It's it's a very interesting watch. It's on Amazon Prime for free. Sounds cool. I'm gonna watch it. I yeah. want to watch. I recommend watch everybody. Half. I kind of feel like I know the story, but I kind of just I, I don't. It so. kept me engaged the entire time. It was a well made film, somewhat overproduced, I would say, from kind of a graphic I just standpoint. Wonder but is it, like I'm just concerned that I don't know. I'm trying, are they, what exactly, why, what's interesting about Bunker Spreckles? He's a fascinating figure. Okay. Like who, all the things you mentioned. Yeah. Clark yeah. family life was weird. Spreckles. Hey, if you, here's, here's a question for you. If somebody dumped an unlimited supply of money on you, how would you live your life? It would be a super interesting thing I would to be watch. Dead. <laughs> right. And he was, so it's a very interesting thing to watch somebody manage that or yeah. mismanage it. Yeah. He died at age 27, club 27, um, how did he die? Uh, did a bunch of Coke, heroin, and drank a bottle of vodka. Mm. Was he on a mission to kind of like, was he, he was he, the turmoil he, that he didn't live up to the Spreckles name and the Spreckles, do you think that that ate him up? And so he, he used alcohol and drugs to kind of hide from that? No. Um, he had his money, so it didn't matter. And he was like, F you to his mom and everybody. I don't think he was trying to say F you to anybody. I don't think. But his I, actions I, I really suggest that he didn't do what the family wanted him to he do. He didn't do what the family wanted him to do. So that probably he ate stopped, him up. He kind of stopped surfing as well. He wanted to be a rock and roller. So he like did that for a few years. So he's years. on a search for who he was. Yeah. maybe He, he was, took on the surf thing and then he took on the rock and roll thing. And his parents wanted him to take on the Spreckles thing. And Yeah. Never fully formed an identity maybe. Yeah. You know? Did that come out in the movie? Did any of that come out in the movie? A little like, bit. Yeah. He was, he was definitely a showman who... Um, I mean, his search for an identity, did that concept, yes, did that, that came theme? Out. I would say it did come out. Yes, that theme emerged. And it's sad that he never theme. found who he really was. And perhaps he was at his happiest when he was 16 and just surfing and carefree. Somebody even said, it might have been Craig Stesick in his modern day interview. He was like, you know, Bunker, it was evident when you were with him that he was putting on a show. And actually the closing interview was with Laird Hamilton. And Laird even said, um, it's unfortunate the drugs kind of created a persona and he was never able to get back to the original bunker that he was, that we knew kind of pre 21 collecting that payday. So it's Got some breaking news. Oh, hit it. The WSL big wave tour Nazare challenge will run this Saturday. Okay. There's a green alert just came through my newsfeed. So the, some expecting some double XL harrowing Portugal beach break at Nazare 
Big Wave World Tour this Saturday. Green alert. It's on. Perfect. That's crazy. We were watching that. They said they were going to make the call this morning. So there you go. All right, Scott. Um, Must-see moment, Dukes, Kooks, any of that jazz? Well, I watched Quivered um, and, and uh, yeah, that's my must-see moment. Check well worth out. watching. Nathan Oldfield's Quivered, uh, Dave Rostovich ripping on Twin Fins. Awesome. Big ones, too. He rides that, like, 8-4 Twin Fin gun thing that he has, that big wave gun. Yep. It's kind of cool. My must-see moment is Rinsed Surf Magazine. Oh. Have you heard of this? <laughs> a print magazine? <laughs> no, it's not. Actually, that's the funniest thing. Rinsed is only a couple weeks old, which is probably why you haven't heard of it, Scott. Right. It is the onion for surfing. Oh, I saw this on... Surfline did a story on this, right? Matt Pruitt at Surfline interviewed the guys. And so again, shout out to Matt Pruitt for uh, getting the early interview because this is literally... This is the kind of surf journalism where you were at. Like that's about the depths of it. You know? No, but here's hey, why... Hey, everyone, there's a new onion. <laughs> here's why I'm patting Matt Pruitt on the back is Rinsed tagged me in something and they were like, hey, you should get us on the podcast. Oh, we should. I'd well, no, you. but my initial thought was like, uh, you guys have only been around for two weeks. Like, so what? Yeah, exactly. Now I'm realizing, so what? Because Matt went ahead and interviewed him and what they had to say was interesting. And not only that, they're killing it. So you know what the onion is? Satirical news. I love the onion. The onion's awesome. Satirical news. So this is satirical surf news. Would you like to hear some of the headlines? I would. I want to write for them. I can tell already I want to be involved. In you this. should <laughs> send them some submissions. I will. So here's the first one. Shocking. Bodyboarder no longer bodyboards now that he's an adult. <laughs> Report concerns for Taj Burrow's mental health persist as he enters year three with Mohawk. <laughs> Shocking local longboarder also into other old stuff. <laughs> Breaking shaper going to need longer than expected to finish your board. <laughs> and one of my favorites. Shocking guy blows chance at second date after deploying a shaka at the end of the first date. <laughs> Bad move. So these are these are the headlines with a ca- with an image, and then the captions that they write are basically like the text of the article itself, yeah. and they are equally equally funny. So Matt Pruitt, as I said on Surfline, did an interview with the guys who are unnamed, but um, they said as hangers on to the world tour. We were involved in a professional capacity and we felt we had an insider scoop on what was going on in the surf world. But the surf media is like that old angry guy losing his marbles in the lineup. Rinsed is that five-year-old getting pushed into waves on his foamy, just having the time of his life, unimpeded by sponsorship or athletic goals. We only started a couple of weeks ago, but it comes after years, if not a lifetime of disenchantment with the way that the surf industry was run. We feel that they're incapable of self-reflection, so we hope to shine a light on the subjects that the mainstream surf media is afraid to touch on. We hope to bring a new voice to surf culture, shake things up a bit, and have a lot of fun, end quote. Cool. So follow them on Instagram at uh, rinsedmag or rinsedmag.com. Um, I'll post a couple as well. They're just really hilarious, so I'm into it. Sweet. All right, dude. Yeah, uh, the boardroom May 5th and 6th. We're almost full, but if you uh, want to be an exhibitor, go to boardroomshow.com and check it out. Awesome. And, of course, we have a big California Gold Surf Auction coming up May 5th in conjunction with the boardroom. So uh, a lot of incredible surfboards on the auction block. Rare, vintage, unique surfboards. 
One I, of a kind. I have an important Duke to share with you this week, Scott. Okay, please do. Pierre Agnes. Oh. How have we not discussed this? I know. It's so sad. Pierre Agnes was lost at sea a couple of weeks ago. He represented France in the 1986 World Championships. He worked for Quicksilver for 30 years. Yeah. And he was actually going to operate as the CEO and preside over this merger with Billabong. Yeah. Uh, he went out on his fishing boat one morning off Capriton in France and into a fog. And I guess he submitted a a call to the local Coast Guard. I'm sure it's not called the Coast Guard in France, saying that he was going to be delayed on his return because of the fog. And he never returned. His boat washed ashore and Pierre has not been found. So Phil Jarrett wrote about his experience with Pierre on Surfline. And he said, quote, despite Pierre's extraordinary accomplishments and his take no prisoners business style, Pierre remained a man of essentially simple pleasures and unquestioned loyalty to family and friends. Jeff Hackman, co-founder of Quicksilver, Quicksilver, remembers, when I was thinking of Pierre, I think of someone who has affected the lives of everyone around him in a big way, either as friend or enemy. There wasn't much middle ground. He was passionate about surfing, family, friends, driving, snowboarding, fishing, just about everything. He can be complicated and intimidating, especially in business, but at the same time, very simple. Um, Harry Hodge, the Quicksilver Europe founder and boss who flagged Pierre as a future leader of the brand back in the 1990s, recalls, Pierre is a great example of how a young surfer can join a surf brand in a menial position and go on to become one of the captains of the industry. I had always uh, envisioned that Pierre would lead the economy and felt great pride when he took over the role of CEO of Quicksilver globally a few years ago. The pupil had become the teacher, end quote. Pierre Agnes leaves behind a wife, daughters, and a son. That's really a bummer. Did they ever find his body or they just gave up searching for it? They did not find his body. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, there's probably going to be a huge memorial in France. And a lot of bigwigs in the industry are flying out for that, I imagine. But that's super sad. Yeah. Rest in peace, Pierre Agnes. Uh, everything that we discussed in this episode, Scott, spitpodcast.com. There's also a comment section. Chime in. And uh, how can they get a hold of you? Scott at boardroomshow.com. Perfect. Or my Instagram at boardroomshow. <laughs> <laughs> sure about that? Do you check Twitter anymore? Yeah. Oh, I, okay. I do a lot of tweeting. Do you? Yeah. People hit you up on that too? Um, it's at boardroomsurf. Cool. On Twitter. All right. Yeah. And then uh, at surfsplendor and then hello at surfsplendorpodcast.com. Make you sure you check you. out our Instagram, David. You're anti our Instagram. It needs to be curated, dude. No, let it flow, bro. Let the spit flow. <laughs> Do you curate the spit? No. You don't curate the spit? No. Just let it fly. You just let the spit fly. But I'll, okay, how I'm about, doing a better job of keeping it on task. Okay, how about this? Here's um, David micromanaging me, folks. This I, is it. You're getting it live right now. I'm going to do as little micromanaging as possible. How about non-blurry imagery? <laughs> Can we start that with the that? Bar? Can I, we start I, with that? I can't promise that, but I'm going to... Attempt based on the track record, I understand that you can't. Oh cannot my god, that. if you that I, is I, I'll, I'll get behind it if you can focus the energy. have you seen any of it? You haven't, what's bad about Dude, it? Let's not go only, there right not now. Not only have I seen it, I have listeners DMing it to me. That's uh, what I have. What's wrong with that? Uh, tagging random people in it. Who's random that I tagged? I don't know. The guy who chimed in and said, Why did you tag me in this? 
because I thought you might be interested. <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, well, I don't know. Is that is that an Instagram faux pas to, to it, randomly tag people? It's an etiquette thing. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's an etiquette thing. I just figured. look. I'm not going to chastise it. Here's actually here's exactly what I thought about it. Right. I was like, this is actually charming. Like I love it. I'm actually fully behind it. So well, then you can help p- put stuff up on it. Spit podcast. You and I. At Spit Podcast is the Instagram. At Spit Podcast. If people want to find out what we're talking about right We now. need some uh, followers. All right, man. Um, all right. Until next week, two weeks from now, where we will preview Snapper. Okay. All right. Until next time, adios and aloha. Okay. I'm sitting here. It's a little echoey in here, but that's okay. And um, my friend Pat Steele and I are here at the Encinitas Library. And Pat has written a book. First of all, Pat, welcome. Thank you. Pat has written a book called Scorpion Bay. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about it. Pat's publicist reached out and said, hey, you want to interview Pat? And I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. This is not a book about surfing. No. Um, <clears throat> I've got a funny little anecdote to kick us off, though. Okay. I used to be a parking enforcement officer in the city of Del Mar. And one time, this was in the 80s, right around the momentum era, if you will. I don't know exactly. It was probably like 89. Right. And I must have given you a parking ticket. (laughs) Do you remember this? I don't. Okay. So back then in Del Mar, you know, we worked out of the lifeguard department. Right. And you came down to the lifeguard department. You hunted me down. Uh And you're like, hey, man, you gave me a parking ticket. Oh, that's funny. And, and you're like, hey, my son's Taylor Steele. And you had like, you had like four of his videos. And you were like, you were like, hey, do you think we can, you know, like you can take care of this, you can, can you take care of this ticket and here's some videos. And of course I couldn't do that, but I think I did sign off on the ticket. That is funny. You don't recall that. I don't recall that, but it is funny because my wife and I, we used to barter out in the water with kids we you know hey you know my son's Taylor Steele you can you give me this set wave you know and uh my wife used it a lot more than I did she that's fun you guys watch videos and they go yeah you know they'd be looking at her like she's an old lady and then she'd go well my son's Taylor Steele and they'd go he is next thing you know they'd be giving her waves and so it's sort of funny that I was using videos to barter a traffic ticket yeah yeah. I'm disappointed you don't remember. I thought you would have some funny anecdote about my behavior or something like that. But <laughs> Well, you know, at this age, I don't retain a lot. No, I, I know what I understand. Um, but, you know, for the audience that's listening, obviously, um, we mentioned Taylor Steele. Pat just happens to be the father of Taylor uh, and Cody Steele, two guys in, um, that I know pretty well, especially Cody, who I surf with a lot. And, um, of course, Taylor made the classic surf video, right. Momentum, right. and then went on to really, that was sort of a ground, it was a groundbreaking video in the surf space back then, of course, featuring, you know, the Weatherleys and the young Kelly Slater and um, Kalani Robb and so forth and so on. Exactly. And uh, here we are. So you wrote this book. This book is called Scorpion Bay. Um, it's an interesting book. Have you, how did you come across? What was your inspiration for writing this book? Well, first, the, the, the name Scorpion Bay 
It's not a good name for surfers because they all know Scorpion Bay. It has nothing to do with Scorpion Bay. But my wife and I were down in mainland Mexico uh, house sitting. And where we were living in the jungle, there were tons of scorpions. And I got stung three times. Once, there was one in my trunks. And she got stung once. And I was really, when I was writing it, since it's fiction, it wasn't geared to surfers. Like one of my friends said, surfers don't buy books. <laughs> so it really was geared just to a, you know, a broader audience. And I like the name Scorpion Bay. And since there were so many scorpions down there, I said, you know, that's a cool name. But you know, now that I'm dealing with my surfing friends, they're like, oh, it's about Scorpion Bay. And I'm like, no, it's not. Yeah. Which was my first, you know, when I first saw it, I'm like, okay, a book about Scorpion Bay. Right. And in many ways, I'm sort of glad it's not, you know? Yeah, I don't know um, exactly. how many anecdotes of, of, you know, surfing second point I could swallow, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> exactly. Um, do you mind me asking where in Mexico it was no, that you yeah. were house-sitting? We were down by Punamita. Okay. And, um, when I, you know, I was a roofing contractor. One of my general contractors said, uh, hey, um, I've got a house down in um, Punta Mita and the little community we're in, uh, mostly Canadians and retired gringos, and they need people to house it in the summer because they don't want to be down there. It's too hot. It's too humid. And he said, there's great surf. So my wife and I took a weekend, went down there, the surf was firing. None of the people that lived there served. So we said, yeah, we're in. You know, both of our kids were over 21, and we decided sabbatical. So we were, we signed up for uh, six months the first year, three months the second year. And there was no TV, no radio, no newspaper. And so we surfed, we explored, and then the surf sort of died the second year. And I was bored out of my mind. I just decided I'm going to start writing. Yeah. So that's how it came about. Cool. And um, maybe some backstory on your, on, your, uh, on your surf history. Like, when did you start surfing? I started surfing 55 years ago. Wow. You know, it was all on board. I lived up, I, I grew up by, uh, I grew up in Plato Ray, which is right by the LA airport. Learned to surf in Bologna Creek, which is the LA River. Oh. And um, it's a jetty, you know, longboard only. Mm -hmm. And um, so I surfed, uh, the surf there was actually terrible. One of the older brothers of my friend would take us down to Beacons. And I was just like heaven. So it was always in the back of my mind that, that, you know, that's the place to go. So when I was, I think, 19, I moved out and rented a trailer by Beacons. So, you know, and then a longboard went to shortboard and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Cool. I do have sort of a amusing story about my son Taylor since he's sort of well known. 
you know, it's really exciting to have a son, thinking about surfing with a son. And um, I tried to get him to go. I mean, I would take, we always went to the beach, and I tried to get him hooked on surfing. And he actually hated it. Hmm. He said, I hate the beach, and I hate surfing. And it's, you know, sort of ironic that he Did you try too hard? I tried way too hard. I made this, you know, I made that parental mistake of it's very important to me, mm-hmm. which right away translates to a kid, well, it's not important to me. Right. And, you know, I actually, I, I was so desperate that uh, he said, I'll, I'll go to the beach if you catch me lizards. So here's a grown man on, <laughs> on the bluff. Cool. Catching lizards just so he would go out. He'd get one ride and then just book, you know, right up the shore and say, I don't want to do it anymore. So the weird thing is, is that what got him into surfing was peer pressure. You know, his mm-hmm. buddies started surfing. Yeah, yeah. And then it kicked in. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it, I, I didn't make this, that mistake with my second son. Yeah. You know, I didn't push him at all. Yeah. So it's a typical parental mistake. Yeah. And it worked. Right? Right. Cody surfs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, the book, Scorpion Bay, and we're talking with Pat Steele, who wrote this book, Scorpion Bay, and it's not a surf book. Again, I'll I'll reiterate, um, it has a lot of father-son themes. Yeah, it does. Maybe you can discuss that. Um, You know, Will and his father, and in many ways, I think that there's sort of a prodigal son thing with Will and Arturo. Right. Yeah. Yeah. my dad actually was a World War II hero, got a Purple Heart, Bronze Star, you know, and um, never, I didn't, I didn't even know he had those medals, I found them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, real low-key guy, and, but a real role model, you know, solid. Yeah. You know, his number one rule was, you know, don't talk back to your mother. Yeah. You know, so... Um, he sort of was an inspiration to me in the in the book as far as not Will's father but Will's grandfather. Ah, you know, okay, interesting. Yeah, you know, so there was that part of it. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, Arturo is you know another role model, really. Yeah. So yeah, I I think there is. It's one of those things where. It's not about what you say, it's what you do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let me just back up and let the listeners know that, that Will Callahan's one of the main is the main character, really, and maybe the secondary character or main character 1A is Arturo. What's Arturo's last name? Cruz. God. Arturo, the Mexican fisherman. Right. Uh, who lives in mainland Mexico and... And again, Will Callahan, who's this construction worker, much like right. yourself, right? Um, and um, and a guy whose father was an alcoholic, yeah. And um, and Will Callahan was, I guess you could say, there was some shame in that. He wasn't right. necessarily proud of his father, and and I think because of that, there was a hole in his heart a little bit in Will's heart, you know when you're a kid and your father's not something that you can look up to like that, you looked up to your dad. Right. There's, um, 
there's a hole, and that hole needs to be filled with something, you know. And I think in the book, within the book, um, it could be argued that at the beginning, you know, Will filled that with with this hard work ethic that you mentioned, right? And then um, later on, through a series of crazy events, which this book is filled with fun, crazy events. It's a fast, easy read. It's it's a, it's a page turner. And by the way, I don't read fast, and I'm almost through the, with this oh, book. That's awesome. So. Um, but what I was going to say is, so Will then goes on this crazy, basically, drug and alcohol rage for, for a long time. And perhaps you could argue, if you were writing a paper about this book, that Will was filling a void in his heart with, with drugs and alcohol. Specifically, he became a heroin addict. You know, how much do we give away in this book as we do this interview? Um, I think it's best is that we just talk about it. Right, you know? yeah, exactly. So... Um, when you were writing the book, did you consider some of these themes that I just kind of popped out? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, the, the irony of it is with his, his upbringing, which was sketchy, that he actually pulled himself out of it and was, you know, self-sufficient, had a good job, was going to get married. Got a, had got, just gotten a, a new a promotion, he right? Gotten a promotion, was going to propose, and then... Boom, events send him back spiraling down all the way to the bottom. So it's like, you know, he made it and then he crashed. Yeah. And then it's a, you know, matter of climbing out of the hole. Yeah. And, you know, as Will's going through some of those trials and tribulations, um, you go into a whole series of other characters. Um, a lot of a lot of um, Arturo is now brought out in the book as we get through the book, right? We learn about who Arturo is, and it ends up that Arturo's um, one of the millions of migrant field workers here in North County of San Diego. Exactly. And um, and Arturo is a really fascinating character to me. Um, he's 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 sort of found this spiritual path that isn't Roman Catholic, save from what you would expect right. a normal. Right. You know, not normal, but a, um, you know, sort of the traditional Mexican spiritual upbringing, which you, quite frankly, you would say is a religious upbringing, not necessarily a spiritual upbringing. And therein lies the difference, because Arturo is this guy who is, seems to be well-read. And in his readings, he has come across East Indian, you know, Eastern philosophies, Eastern right, spiritual right. agendas, if you will. And um, he's taken little bits of everything and sort of incorporated it into his own spiritual dogma, for lack of a better phrase. So he's not religious, Arturo. He's spiritual. And it's fascinating because it's sort of out of left field. Like, where did Arturo come? Where did that come from? Like, it would be hard to find a Mexican migrant worker that is doing yoga and right, right, exactly. Where did that all come from? Ironically. I went to parochial school for 12 years, and I, at the end, you know, I, I pretty much dropped off being a, a Catholic when I was a senior in high school because I just couldn't find the spirituality in it. And, you know, I mean, being raised, you know, my mother was um, very devout and, you know, said a rosary every night. And, um, you know, there was a gap there in my own life, you know, 
And so I, I, start, I tried to go back to the Catholic Church, but I just couldn't do it. And I ended up going to Self-Realization Fellowship. And I was impressed with the fact that the first thing they say when you go in is, we pray to saints of all religions. And that's in the book. And I said to myself, wait a minute. In the Catholic Church, if you aren't on this path, you're lost. Right. And as soon as they said that, I said, that's in, that, I love that. Yeah. I love the fact that it's not tunnel vision. And the fact that they said, you know, it's you finding it. It's not we telling you what it is. So I just really, really, that, that made a big impression on me. And I, I just wanted to get that transformation into the into the book and into somebody that would be spiritual. Yeah. You know, because, I don't know, I, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, I, when I lived in Mexico, people were so poor, and here's all this gold in the church. Yeah. That's disturbing to me. Yeah. You know, I just don't find that to be the way Jesus would be. Yeah. And that literally is in the book, right? There's right. a part in the book. Right. Where Arturo is sort of, I think he's questioning Isabella's relationship with the church. Maybe I'm wrong there, but he was questioning it. Or no, she questions him. Oh, that's what it is, right. Yeah, she questions, you know, all, all, all of the Mexicans around Arturo are like, this dude's nuts. Yes. You know, I mean, that's not what we believe. Right. You know, so they, they tolerate him. So Isabella, for the listeners, is, is Arturo's wife. Right. And... Um, does, does, does your mother and her devoutness, um, is she captured in some way in Isabella? Because Isabella's very devout. Right. You know... Uh, mm, or was she? I mean, I know she went to church every Sunday religiously. She was very devout. She had her shrine with her candles in it. Um, yeah, you know, I would say, you know, subconsciously that happened. Yeah, yeah, right. Because, uh, you know, my mom was... Uh, it was black and white for her. Yeah. You know, it was, there was no gray. Right. You don't go to mass, you know, you sinned. Right. So. And how was your relationship? I'm sure your mother's passed, but did you reconcile anything with her regarding your going to the Self-Realization Fellowship here at Swami's and her devoutness? Well, you know, the, the irony of that is I had a very difficult relationship with my mother because of that fact. Yeah. And, you know, I was a teenager in the 60s. Yes. Do so, the math, right? Yeah. I had long hair. You know, mm-hmm. I was part of the, you know, peace and love and, you know, let's get stoned. And, you know, it, it drove her completely, you know, yeah. wacky. And, and, in fact, we just, we, had, we came to an agreement that I had to leave, you know, mm-hmm. because we were at two ends of the spectrum. Once I had, in fact, we were at such odds that when I got married, I, I married a girl from Texas, and we went back there. Um, I didn't invite them to the wedding. Oh, I was that's funny. The only person I knew at my wedding was my wife. <laughs> wow! So, so uh, we were at you make odds. up all sorts of shit. <laughs> so we were at odds, and and really the only thing that really brought us back together is me having a son when I had Taylor. You know, she's yeah. so family orientated. Yeah. We had to patch it up. And, and, you know, she grew, too. You know, she, she, she understood my, you know, my, my search. So, yeah. but, um, you know, I mean, it, it's hard for somebody that 
you know, believes that if they don't follow their religion, they're going to go to hell. Yeah. To not want to have their kid not go to hell. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So, you know, that was, that was to, you know, we, we came to an understanding. That's interesting. You know, it's, perhaps she was just so stubborn about this because of her love for you that the stubbornness drove you apart. Absolutely. Well, you know, she, here's the thing is that she's a straight-A student. Ironically, in that time frame, she was way smarter than my dad. My dad didn't finish high school. And my mom grad, uh, got a scholarship to college, graduated straight A's, was a teacher for a while. And, but she was the homemaker. Where in this day and age, she'd be a breadwinner. Yeah. You know? Keep going, you're good. So, uh, anyway, you know, she had that frustration, I think, because she knew that she had wasted talent. And her big deal for me was, or two things were religion and education. None of her kids went to college, Ooh. and all of them dropped off the Catholic Church. Oh no! So she had put her through hell, dude. <laughs> and I feel bad about that. Oh, I'm sure it's. Yeah, I'm she sure it's she told me uh, one time. She says, "There's two things I want you to be: either a lawyer or a priest." I'm like. <laughs> It's a pretty far down. <laughs> How about a surfer? <laughs> yeah. Which is, you know, my parents had no idea what surfing was. Yeah. Well, there's some other themes in the book. Again, the book Scorpion Bay, Pat Steele. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned the prodigal son thing. There are some other themes, and one of the themes is the importance of family. And, um, you know, there's a part of the book where Arturo's... Um, Courting Isabella, I guess you could say. He's right. really driven in love with this woman. And she's got some other big wig guy with money. Right. And um, and I guess that theme really isn't about family so much, but he was really a he was really a family guy, Arturo. Right. He was really driven by the value of family and um, and the value of true love. So maybe you can speak about that a little bit and how it relates to Well, you know, that's that's I mean how how you choose a mate. Is, is always interesting to me, yeah. you know? And and the weird thing is, is, you know, my wife and I, I mean, we, when we started, we were penniless, you know? Yeah. I mean, when I was roofing, we our budget was so tight that my shoes would be given out and I'd have to duct tape them, Yeah, you know, which isn't that safety uh, on a roof. Right. OSHA's know? not approving that. <laughs> no, OSHA's not approving that. <laughs> But, you know, the thing is, is the key is, you know, the love or the feeling towards each other. Not, you know, I mean, a lot of times women go for security. Yeah. And that was sort of the, what I wanted to put in there. Here was the doctor dating Isabella. Right. It wasn't a good relationship. Right. You know, but there's security. And her mother is saying to her, take the security. Right. You know, instead she goes with. You know Arturo and you know the feeling of love, and it, and it was a leap of faith. And it's interesting that the church was tied into that. It was her church that was tied into that. This concept of faith, go with what's in your heart. It was pretty fascinating. There's a portion of the book that's um, got a lot of biker gang stuff and a lot of <laughs> meth and a lot of whores and a lot of fucking, for lack of a better phrase, <laughs> right? And a lot of just debauchery, you yeah. know. And so. Yeah. When I was reading it, I'm like, wow, 
Pat Steele go through this? Like, where did you draw um, insight? Well, that, you know, that's the weird thing about that is, um, so picture I, I graduated from high school in 1967, which is right in the middle of the, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out, Timothy Leary. Yeah. And, I, and all of us started smoking weed, yeah. you know, and where I lived, it escalated quickly into, you know, hard drugs. And it was weird because there was, it, there was a transition where guys, guys that were really into their cars, you know, and they were muscle cars, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, it was a big thing in my little town for guys would park on this one street that had all these trees and take all day, wax their cars, shine the chrome. And as soon as the, it went from weed and psychedelics to, you know, barbiturates and speed and heroin, you could just see it in their cars. Their cars totally deteriorated. Right. You know, because yeah. they're too, too loaded. Yeah. And then it got, went from peace and love and this and that to getting ripped off. Yeah. You know, so I had that background, like one of my ex-girlfriends, you know, overdose. Yeah. Heroin died. Yeah. And when you were her boyfriend or? We had broken up. Uh, yeah. But the first time I went to take her out, her dad was a doctor. Hmm. He took me in the other room and he, he actually broke down in tears and he said, Doreen's got a drug problem and I, I'm just wondering if you could help me. Oh my God. Not knowing that I was part of the problem. Right. So that whole debauchery and everything that's sort of what I experienced yeah. in, in, in my, you know, teenage years. And that's one of the reasons that I ended up uh, moving down here was I had stopped surfing, yeah. you know, and I had to get out of town. Yeah, you had to do it. I had to get out of town. Cheap, I, I, my brother gave me a ride to uh, Lucadia. I had a hundred bucks, suitcase, and my board. Wow. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, it's it's obvious that you've drawn on you know past experience, exactly. which all writers do for, right. for your book. And um, again, the book Scorpion Bay, um, the value of hard work you mentioned earlier. That seems to me to be another theme in this. Um, certainly, Arturo is an extremely hard worker. Isabella, even their children are helping them work. Will Callahan is a hard worker. Um, and that's obviously, I, I know about you, Pat, enough to know that you've, you've got quite a crew. I'm sure you're retired now, but at one point you had a big crew of guys that were right. all surfers. And, and I'm sure that, you know, you demanded, if nothing else, be here on time and, and, and work your ass off. And, you know, maybe touch on that a little bit. I know you have. Yeah, you know, the, the irony of roofing is, well, first of all, there's no trades in the schools anymore. So it's sort of, I consider roofing like a, a, a tray where it, you fall, somebody falls through all the cracks and at the bottom there's a tray that says roofing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you don't, you, you, you get, you know, hard, hardened people mm -hmm. coming in, but they're, they're good workers. Yeah. But, you know, they basically failed at everything else. Yeah. And for me personally, I like the outdoors. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of construction jobs that, you know, 
are in the interior, insulation, drywall, plumbing, electrical. But roofing was outdoors. I, I like that about it. And to tell you the truth, my work ethic really kicked in once I had a kid. Yeah. Because I was surf obsessed. Yeah. You know. Was that an addiction? Um, Not in a bad way, but I mean. Yeah. You know, I mean, it really was. Uh, it, you know, I think I sort of have an addictive personality. Yeah. So when I moved down here, I got a job um, with a brick mason. And my buddy and I would alternate days. So every other day I had off. So he would pull up in front of our place, honk the truck, horn of the truck. One of us would come out. <laughs> Perfect. You know, so, um, yeah, I was, a, I was addicted to surfing. And, and also, you know, it was, it was also still in that turn on, tune in, drop out. You know, we're not going to be, you know, capitalists. You mm -hmm. know, we're hippie commune. Yeah. We think differently. But a lot of idealism. Yeah. As soon as it, as soon as I had a kid, man, it just all that that foundation I had of a work ethic just blew up. Yeah. You know, I couldn't work enough Saturdays and etc. So. And it paid off. Yeah. You know, I mean, the funny thing about construction, and it's construction. If you give a fair price and show up on time, you've got all the work you want. There's yeah. so many flakes in construction. Yeah. And it was just, it's so weird. I mean, without any advertising, next thing you know, I have a roofing business. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, um, again, the book is Scorpion Bay. I'm speaking with Pat Steele. And, um, you know, I don't know if there's anything else that you want to touch on. The book's fabulous. I'm enjoying the crap out of it. You can see I'm almost oh, done. Awesome. I'm right that's here. Awesome. And um, I went snowboarding all weekend and read, read through the book. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a really cool book. Um, have we left anything out? Not that I know. you got to go buy the book. Where can we get the book? Because I'm advising everybody to get this book. It's a great book, and Pat's a great guy, and the story's fabulous. And, and it, like I said, for me, quite frankly, I was going, oh, God. Some guy wrote a book about surfing. That's the last friggin' right. thing I want to read, you know. So right. I was so pleasantly surprised when I started getting into it. Wow, you know. Yeah, it's on Amazon Books. Uh, you can go to Amazon Books and buy it. Um, yeah, you know, again, the Scorpion Bay title. When I was when I was writing it, I was we were down there in Max Mainland Max, and since there's no, you know, TV, radio, or anything, all everybody had a library. Of recreational books, yeah. you know, and so you would borrow books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So when I was writing it, I was picturing it being, you know, somebody that's on the beach reading, not a surfer. Right. So the Scorpion Bay is, you know, it's unfortunately a bad name, but again, I don't know if it's a bad name, but maybe. You're suggesting maybe the cover art's kind of misleading. <laughs> I, I could have seen. Oh, there's a guy on a motorcycle. Finally, okay. There's a hyperbolic. Oh, yes, exactly. All right. Well, cool, Pat. Thank you, man. This is right. going to go on the back end of our podcast. We're doing excellent. Yeah. All right. Appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Scott. Let's go get some waves. Thank you, buddy. Right Appreciate on. It.